0: Throughout human history, there are countless stories of those who seek revenge for wrongs done to them or their families. It doesn't even matter whether it was truly a wrong, they just have to perceive it as such. Sometimes a parent will impart this to their children so that successive generations can continue to work towards the goal of setting things right as they see it. George R. R. Martin knows this kind of story is ripe with opportunity, and he's used it to masterful effect with the Blackfire rebellions. In this case, there's more than a parent and child seeking revenge, more than a family carrying on a tradition. In a sense, it's an entire army commanded by this family. He's given us a scenario where plans set in motion many generations ago are still playing out now, though the original plotters are long dead, and the current plotters largely unaware of how much they are dancing to the tune set by their predecessors. How it all got to this point is an awesome story, and we're here to tell it to you. The Golden Company exists because of the Fire Rebellions, and they're our focus today. Yet only a part of it all. Bittersteel himself still looms large in this story, despite the full episode we just gave him, and many other characters too. The first Fire Rebellion was a civil war. The second was an attempted uprising. The third, fourth, and fifth, better known as the War of Ninepenny Kings, were invasions. Invasions that counted on Westerosi rising up to join them, but invasions nonetheless local support wasn't going to come until the main army landed. And that main army, in all these cases, has been the Golden Company. Hey, fellow Backstory addicts, this is the penultimate installment of our long take on the Blackfire Rebellions. However, this episode will touch more on the current storyline, as well as history, of course, as those historic themes do play out in A Song of Ice and Fire. And we're at that point. We're going to make these connections here. Also, we've had a lot of not the man behind the throne, but the man behind the race for the Iron Throne, Stephen Atwell. Welcome back. Thank you. Glad to be back. Right on. What are you working on these days?
1: Right now I'm working my way through the Politics of the Seven Kingdoms series, a series of essays looking at the sort of historical development of each of the Seven Kingdoms as different polities. And I'm also working my way through, uh, excuse me, uh, Storm of Swords.
0: Yeah, you've been doing chapter readings for a while, not readings, but chapter analysis for a while there, yeah.
1: Yeah, the um, Race for the Iron Throne Volume 2, which covers the whole of uh, Clash of Kings, just came out. And uh, I'm, you know, making my way through uh, Storm of Swords. So I'm going to be there for a while.
0: Yeah, that's the longest one yet. It's still the longest book, right? Dance didn't quite pass it. Got close. In terms of chapters, yeah. Ah, okay. All right. So, and your, of course, your essays on the Rebellions have helped me catch and consider quite a few things myself and surely would do to the rest of you. So, again, you can find those at Tower of the Hand. And those are, the series is called The Blacks and the Reds, right? Mm-hmm. Right on. Okay, so check that out, folks. Now, like our other episodes with you, we're doing the hybrid thing, where we have most of this pre-scripted that we've written out in advance, but a lot of it also is left for us to discuss Freeform. It's been a good system for us so far. A few other thanks before we get going. Thanks to Rainy's Targaryen, uh, Queen of Timelines, for catching my blunders. Uh, this time, I, th- I did a lot of writing late at night, and that really showed. She caught a few really boneheaded mistakes I made, so uh, good looking out there, Rainy's. Joey Townsend and Jesse Koal for the intro and outro music, respectively. Jeff Gnarly. Uh, the High Snapper, <laughs> Jeff Nelly Jeff, the Long Snapper. I said High Snapper there. Well, you can be both the High and Long Snapper. History of Westeros' First Sword. And Lord Mark of House Joseph, the Snow and Winterfell. Writer of Maslacartha, the White Dragon with Green Scales horns, wings, and talons. I wrote white in all caps on my script this time because I kept saying green. (laughs) And then we have Ashaya on the other side of the camera today playing the producer role. Hi back there, Ashaya. And if you missed it, Ashaya, myself, and Sean of House Beard have a new podcast called Fandom Media where we chat about certain other shows and movies amongst our favorites. We started with Star Wars Rogue One. And we're working on our way through It's Always Sunny Season 12, which has been great so far. And we're going to be working on The Expanse soon, which is a series we highly recommend, both books and TV. Lots more to come there, and you can get more info by tuning into Fandom Media. Check it out on iTunes. No video, just iTunes. And finally, I want to point out this is our first remade episode out of... We've been doing this for a long time, and of course we started before The World of Ice and Fire was out. And of course... In this long time that we've been doing this, we've gotten a lot better at production quality, things like that. So that old episode isn't really up to our old standards. But more importantly, the world of ice and fire has changed a lot. So that's kind of neat. We're, it's got a bit of a milestone for us passing uh, what we had done before. So that's all we have for the announcements. So let's get going. Are you ready? Perfect. Our first section is called The Life of an Exile.
1: There are quite a few exiles from Westeros in the Caribbean storyline. Some of them fled in fear for their lives, others were ordered by the king. Uh, Denny and Viserys, of course, uh, come to mind first, uh, but there's also uh, Sir Jorah Mormont, Sir Barristan Selmy, John Connington, and of course Tyrion Lannister.
0: Yeah, Tyrion's the best known, but that's a pretty long list. A common thread for everyone just named, apart from exile, is a burning desire to get back at those who wronged them. All those people have someone they want to get back at, some of them multiples. Without the means to do so, though, in the short term, that's the problem. So they all were forced to be patient, which fits the old saying, the old cliche, that revenge is a dish best served cold. Usually we draw on history to color our understanding of the current storyline, but sometimes it works in reverse. This is one of those cases. The experiences of some of our dearest, most favorite characters can give us insight into what certain historical figures must have gone through in their own way. This is something we'll be able to do a lot of, because so many characters we know a lot about have been exiles.
1: Jorah Mormont is the one whose experience probably is the most in common with the majority of Blackfire loyalists. Jorah was able to flee with his wife, and while most of the Blackfire loyalists would not have been able to do so, surely some did. Uh, others would have more than just a wife. There would be kids, uh, the occasional mother, father, aunt, uncle, and so on and so forth. Uh, in other words, they had expenses without means. All of these exiles have this in common, whether we're talking about the current storyline or the past, there's very little to no income, right? You know, you see Illyrio taking in Danny and Viserys while also bankrolling John Connington and Young Griff, but they're sort of exceptions to the rule. Most of them have an experience more like Sir Joris
0: Right. In a nutshell, they slowly go broke, perhaps in part or in large part due to family get work as a sellsword, and then <laughs> ally yourself to someone with a claim to the Iron Throne who can offer you a chance to go home. Funny how that seems to be the end point for all these characters. <laughs> but it's a tough path, because selling your sword is dishonorable by Westerosi standards. I imagine some of the exiled families had serious culture shock. Not only that, but just being in Essos is just really different. The people of the Free Cities will recognize knights as warriors, but there's no elevated social status. Lord still carries some weight, but landless broke lord? Not so much. In Westeros, a landless knight can find semi to permanent employment with a lord, but such opportunities are rarer in the free cities because they don't hold standing armies, things like that. There's just, it's a different situation. So with all these lords and knights, what are they to do? From the world of ice and fire. Those followers of the Black Dragon who survived the battle, yet refused to bend the knee, fled across the narrow sea. Among them, Daemon's younger sons, Bittersteel, and hundreds of landless lords and knights who soon found themselves forced to sell their swords to eat. Some joined the ragged standard, some the Second Sons or Maiden's men. Oh, that's what they are to do. Not terribly promising, though, is it? If it had more appeal, it wouldn't be a last resort, right? They would have started doing this sort of thing right away instead of more than a decade or so. We don't know the dates on all these exiles, but basically it sounds like it was a last resort.
1: It's a bit on the bleak side. Westerosi knights and lords, for the most part, they help, they hate sellswords. swords. Uh, so for many of them, this would have been very embarrassing. And it's so far from where they wanted to be. You can't exactly make another play for the Iron Throne if you're under contract to fight somewhere in the disputed lands. So the idea of beating the regime that drove them into exile must have seemed like an unattainable goal to most, especially as, you know, the years begin to go by.
0: Yeah, to most. Not all, though, right? Some are just that stubborn. Some just don't give up no matter what. And, of course, I'm talking about bitter steel. But what does this matter if his erstwhile allies are too broke to help? He's, ser- he's just one man. All the desire and ambition in the world matters little when you mean the me- when you lack the means to put your plans into action. In addition... To those saying that revenge is a dish best served cold, they also say a journey of a thousand miles, or leagues, starts with a single step. And the first step for him was joining the Second Sons. From the world of ice and fire, among the oldest of the free companies is the Second Sons, founded by two score younger sons of noble houses who found themselves dispossessed and without prospects. Ever since, it has been a place where landless lords and exiled knights and adventurers could find a home. Sounds like he was among people who had a lot in common with him. It sounds like the company may have even been founded by Westerosi, though that's far from certain, just kind of a guess.
1: It's not clear what came first, Bittersteel joining the Second Sons or the failure of the Second Blackfire Rebellion. And that makes it difficult to guess at whether the failure of the Second Rebellion played a role in him joining the company. It's possible that Bittersteel going off to join the Second Sons gave Daemon II more leeway to do his thing. It's also possible that Damon II's failure may have spurred Bittersteel into a new course of action. It's even possible that his stint in the Second Sons was long before the formation of the Golden Company. It's a bit of an assumption that we're working with, but it's not a short thing.
0: Right, it's possible he joined the Second Sons much sooner. We're working with the assumption that it was Second Sons and then Golden Company pretty close together, but that's not exactly how it's stated. It's a little more ambiguous in the sources, but... That's just a small point. Regardless, the failure of the Second Rebellion and the formation of the Company were not far apart. So, guessing that the two were related, at least in some way, at least it sits well, fits well. From Agor's point of view, well, he may have been surprised at the lack of support for Damon II, but he, but the opposite is also possible. Maybe even more likely, he may have been surprised at how much support Damon, well, almost got. <laughs> it didn't actually get going, did it? If Agor had thought it likely to succeed, he probably wouldn't have stayed out of it. After all. There's another way to look at it, though. It's possible that Bittersteel's stock had
1: fallen far enough that he was one of those in debt, fairly desperate need of in income. After all, he didn't have any lands. He was a knight, but not a landed knight. So he may not have actually been able to muster much resources on his own.
0: Right, we're maybe giving him too much credit for what he was capable of doing at that time, given his resources. Most likely, there were several competing factors at play here. It's a bit hazy, but at least the bottom lines are clear enough. Help from Tyrosh and others was no longer a major factor, as evidenced by the Blackfires' lack of money. I mean, that's the most basic. If they're selling their swords to eat, then what kind of support could they possibly be getting? That meant that if Agor wanted to keep the dream alive, he needed to fund it himself, or become a factor again, become something worth funding again, become an ally worth having again. Get back to the proverbial table. Get that seat. But he was not a politician, certainly not a merchant, certainly not a courtier. He was a warrior. So... That's going to be his path of success. Anything he's going to come up with for a plan to get back in it is going to involve fighting. That's what he does best.
1: So despite the serious obstacles in his path, Agor's skill set was extremely marketable in Essos thanks to the aforementioned need for sellswords. It's likely that when he joined the Second Sons, several other Westerosi did as well or already had.
0: Yeah, and it's a large, dangerous, and angry-looking man, as we talked about in the last episode, I imagine whichever second son was in charge of signing up new recruits that day probably told the story to his friends later. Maybe that night, even, or at least years later, once Bittersteels was well-known, once he was as famous as he eventually became, if he hadn't been then already. Yeah, so that's kind of a neat story. After all, that man could claim to have been the one to recruit what they're calling the most famous member of their company of all time. So that's pretty cool. And it is apparently a long history, featuring many other famous Westerosi. From the world of ice and fire. Many famous names from the Seven Kingdoms have served in the Second Sons at one time or another. Prince Oberyn Martell rode with them before founding his own company. Roderick Stark the Wandering Wolf was counted one of them as well. The most famous Second Son was Sir Aegor Rivers, that bastard son of King Aegon IV, known to history as Bittersteel.
1: It seems that one-year contracts are very commonplace for sellsword companies. We see a bit of this process uh, when Tyrion joins the same company. Tyrion is you know, very careful to learn about how sellsword companies work while he's, you know, working with them, which I'm sure will be quite useful later on. For Agor, this was almost certainly part of the plan, that he wasn't joining the Second Sons out of any particular interest in them and themselves, he wanted to see how the game worked. And, you know, one of the questions is, how many of the other Blackfire exiles joined along with him? Did he take a group with him? Perhaps a few, perhaps more than a few. He may have already been planning on forming the Golden Company even before he joined the Second Sons in what you could sort of call industrial espionage. But despite all of his battlefield experience and skill with the sword, you know, it's still true that Westerosi armies and Essosi armies are different. So, you know, he would have arrived with a lot to learn about how war is done in Essos.
0: Yeah, it almost sounds kind of funny to say, well, what does he have to learn? He's an experienced warrior, but you're right. There's a lot. It's just a different culture, different fighting styles, different people that are hiring you. All It's all very different. And But apparently, it only took him about a year to learn those things. I guess it was enough, but enough for what? Well, we're not sure exactly, but there are a lot of things that make sense, as we've just explained. First of all, he made some money, which we said he needed. Uh, he made some new contacts, certainly. That seems likely. Learned, and, of course, the most important thing, learned how sales work companies operate, and maybe when he left to form the Golden Company, some of the second sons might have left with him to join his new company. They may have liked that idea better. Basically, the short version would be to say that he saw things from the inside, and clearly, if you're judging things after the fact, he figured out how to improve on them. And he really needed to, though, because given the circumstances facing them, the exiles were not a united body.
1: Right, but we have to be careful that we're not giving still too much credit here, or that we're not reading later history back You know, we've ascribed to him this master plan of sort of infiltrating the Second Sons, learning the ins and outs of sort companies in order to make his own, then making it this huge organization, giving it this amazing reputation, and using it to win the Iron Throne. But, you know, historical honesty requires us to say, as much as it would be really cool if he had this kind of, you know, almost Batman-level plan, all of this had been worked out in advance, the reality was, you know, you were dealing with someone who was broke? Who was not very in control of his destiny? Who was probably reacting to situations as they happened, learning on the job, and then coming up with the idea after the fact.
0: It's true. I mean, he's a fan favorite. Better steel is, but characters like Stannis remember him as a failure, as a total failure. And that's that's we we've got no way to know how what kind of perception he had amongst you know people that mattered back then. So. Another uh, couple things to think about here. What if Bittersteel left the second stuns after a year? Not because it's the time he needed, but because he just couldn't stand it, right? We're trying to come up with possibilities that make him sound less amazing because maybe this is more accurate. Maybe he just hated the officers or the captain, or maybe there was someone he wanted to kill but couldn't because, you know, that's frowned upon to kill your fellow brothers. Even the brave companions probably have rules against that, if little else. <laughs> or maybe he was worried about what was happening in Tyrosh with the Blackfire family. While he's off in some sellsword company fighting who knows where, What's Bloodraven up to? What what are the rest of the Blackfires doing? Are they are usurping his position? Are they going off and doing things without him? Did they need his protection? Hmm.
1: And part of what complicates all this is that, you know, the blackfire family and its members are really a mystery in this period. We don't have names for a large portion of them. There's several kind of, we know roughly how many sons Damon Blackfire had, but we don't know all of them and we don't know what happened to all of them. So this sort of the overall number of Blackfires that we're talking about is rather unknown. And the range of possibilities in terms of, you know, who had sons, who didn't, what were they doing is really wide.
0: Yeah, so we definitely got some things to say, though, despite that. The, 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 the wide range of possibilities allows us to have more fun with picking out what might have happened based on what few things are very certain. So let's look at that Blackfire family at this point in our storyline, starting around the time the company was formed, while well, keeping in mind what they may have been going through before that. The Blackfire Dynasty, circa 212. One of the reasons to doubt any of the Blackfires being the soft, creature-comfort-preferring types is that being in exile can be very tough, as we've shown. They probably didn't have it as bad as most, but they certainly weren't raised in luxury, at least not most of the time, like the majority of their Targaryen cousins. It's hard to get attached to the finer things when you don't have the finer things.
2: Daenerys III, A Clash of Kings. She was no pampered lady, blind to such things. She had seen cut purses aplenty in the streets of the Free Cities during the years she'd spent with her brother, running from the usurper's hired knives.
1: And as this quote reminds us, the Targaryens that we know best from Song of Ice and Fire were only partially raised in luxury, and even that was very perilous and precarious. Um, and this is another great parallel where we can sort of think about the past. The young Fires, you know, the, especially the younger Sons and even the Sons of Sons, would have had a lot of things in common with Danny and Viserys, possibly a lot of things, Um, you know, growing up in exile. But also, another great example is Viserys' fear of hired knives.
0: The Game of Thrones Daenerys won. Magister Illyrio's words were honey. Many important men will be at the feast tonight such men have enemies the cow must protect his guests yourself chief among them your grace no doubt the usurper would pay well for your head oh yes viserys said darkly he has tried illyrio i promise you that his hired knives follow us everywhere i am the last dragon and he will not sleep easy while i live We saw, in part, from Robert and Ned's side of things, that Viserys's fear of assassins was mostly Illyrio feeding his pre-existing paranoia. So it wasn't a hard thing to do, I suppose, because, you know, Viserys was quite paranoid. But it was a clever thing to do, because the idea is very plausible in the first place. That's why it fooled even us readers and Daenerys, too.
2: We
1: don't really know enough about Bittersteel to know if he, you know, rose to the level of uh, manipulativeness to do the same thing as Illyrio, lying to the Blackfyre family about assassins coming after them, because they were, at this point, his own family, so that is kind of a a big line to cross. But it is, you know, a compelling possibility. I'm not sure that the same thing happened, but probably something similar. Definitely, given his vendetta with Bloodraven, he would have very much sort of stressed the threats and the dangers and the need for protection, possibly overstating matters.
0: I agree. Yeah. Instead of Illyrio and Viserys, this is probably more like Connington and young Griff. The Griffin reborn is very cautious with Aegon, as we've seen with the stone men nearby and all that. So this could be like that. Aegor knows best, that sort of thing. And as you'll see, and as you've already seen, John Connington and Aegor and have quite a bit in common. And this is one of those things. So while Illyrio is exaggerating the danger, Connington really believes in it. And that might be more what Agor would feel like, especially with Bloodraven being his archenemy and all, and knowing what he's capable of. And especially as things became more desperate and helped dried up, like it did for Danny and Viserys. And we took a liberty here and changed four names in a Danny quote, pretending that it's from Daemon's eldest daughter, Kala, and I think you'll like what we come up
2: with here. Originally from Daenerys 1, A Game of Thrones. At first, the magisters and archons and merchant princes were pleased to welcome the last fires to their homes and tables, but as the years passed and the falseborn continued to sit upon the Iron Throne, doors closed and their lives grew meaner. Years passed, they had been forced to sell their last few treasures, and now even the coin they had gotten from Mother's Crown had gone. In the alleys and wine sinks of Tyrosh, they called her brother the Beggar King. Kala did not want to know what they called her.
0: I think it works pretty nicely. It might give a good idea of what it was like for them. It's at least an approximation, but there are major important differences. We don't want to go too far with this comparison. The Blackfires were not nearly as alone, given all the other exiles. That said, a lot of the exiles were vanishing into the ranks of sellsword companies prior to the Golden Company coming along to get the band back together. <laughs> but Bittersteel didn't want the exiles flittering away to various places, and surely that was even more true for the actual Blackfire heirs.
1: It's- Perhaps that, you know, uh, another comparison is uh, Jalabarjo, the exiled Summer Island prince, who sought men from Robert Baratheon. Robert told him next year many times, and it's possible that the, you know, the lords of Tiroche told this to the Blackfires, their kinsmen, many times. You know, next year, next year.
0: Yeah, just next year, <laughs> exactly, yeah, I can totally see that happening. It makes me wonder how the Blackfires were raised, and whether they thought the Iron Throne was what they deserved, like Viserys did, or something to earn, like Faegon apparently does. Did they flaunt their heritage to keep it on the down low? Were shaved heads like Egg or Varus, as some wonder, common? If not shaved heads, perhaps hair dye, like young Griff who had blue hair. A Dance with Dragons, Tyrion Three. My mother was a lady of Tyrosh, I dye my hair in memory of her. I like to think that young Griff is unwittingly referring to Rohan of Tyrosh, the wife of Damon Blackfyre himself and true mother of the Blackfyre dynasty. It may have been her relatives giving the Blackfyres the Jalabarjo treatment during that time prior to the formation of the Golden Company.
1: I definitely wonder whether it was more like that or more like the hiding that Aegon Sixth had to do. One of the many mysteries of being born of Blackfyre.
0: Yeah. Another parallel from A Song of Ice and Fire helps us here. Think of Varys, describing the virtues of his claimant, Aegon Sixth, who, we needn't remind you, might be a Black Fire himself. A Dance with Dragons, epilogue. He has lived with fisherfolk, worked with his hands, swum in rivers, and mended nets, and learned to wash his own clothes at need. He can fish, and cook, and bind up a wound. He knows what it is like to be hungry, to be hunted, to be afraid. The Young Blackfires might be a lot like this, starting off well, going downhill, but learning from it, growth from adversity. However, again, we can't go too far with these parallels. I feel comfortable enough with them, but we don't want to get out of of hand here. But Varys also points out how well-rounded Aegon is in the same quote. He has been trained in arms, as befits a knight to be, but that was not the end of his education. He reads and writes, he speaks several tongues, he has studied history and law and poetry. Scepta has instructed him in the mysteries of the faith since he was old enough to understand them. Although possible, this seems a lot less likely. I like to think that they got trained well, but this well-rounded education, that's a lot less certain. We shouldn't be sure that Bittersteel and the others cared about this, after all. The Black Dragon attracted warriors, while scholars and artists preferred the Red Dragon. In fact, it was one of the things they were mocked about. So they may have felt entitled on the level of someone like, well, again, like Viserys.
1: On the other hand, you know, a lot of time had passed, and it's possible that they saw the political necessity of being more well-rounded, that it made you look more kingly. Uh, Damon II, for example, clearly knew both the arts of being a knight and also the arts of being a bard. Um, He was charming, well-educated, and uh, clearly trained in uh, the courtier's life. Part of the difficulty here is we know very little about the influences from the mother's side of the family. And that could have been huge. You know, the homage to Rohan is cool, but we don't know what her thinking was on the Game of Thrones or what her family's thinking was. Likewise, we don't know anything really about Kala uh, Blackfire, Damon's oldest daughter who married Bittersteel.
0: Now, another important major difference is that Varys and Illyria have all their eggs in one basket, even though they gave their actual eggs to Danny. That basket is Egon. Aegon is a one-headed dragon, while Bittersteel had basically a Hydra. <laughs> Bittersteel could afford to be a little less cautious in a lot of ways. This is part of the reason we feel it likely that many, or most, of them fought beside him in the Golden Company, which is yet another reason for Bittersteel to have formed the company in the first place. I mean, we just got through pointing out that there were several Blackfire sons available to claim the Iron Throne, but I doubt Aegor was keen on them scattering and fighting for a variety of sellsword companies, where it would be just really easy for one of them to turn up dead because of a well-priced bribe or something along that. I mean, yeah, we said he's got a Hydra here, but he doesn't want to go losing Hydra heads left and right. We don't even mean like an assassination. We mean like a commander giving this guy a dangerous job and then doing that over and over until it gets him killed. That's a way that commanders have gotten rid of troublesome soldiers since the dawn of mankind, really. And, you know, Bittersteel
1: was smart enough to have seen that possibility and not like the idea of it. What he would have liked a lot more is the idea, well, what if I'm calling the shots? What if my officers are all Blackfire loyalists and immune to bribery? That's just a better scenario all around, which is another reason why keeping everyone together made a lot of political sense.
0: Yeah. Okay, let's have a little fun. Let's frame the state of affairs regarding the actual Blackfires themselves as best we can. The only certain dead were Damon the First, his eldest twin sons Aegon and Amon, and Damon II was probably still a prisoner at this point, but of course he died at some point.
1: After him came the fourth son Hagon, and then the fifth son Anus. And then two other brothers who may or may not have still been alive. We don't know, we don't have names for them, so we'll just call them Blackfires 6 and 7. <laughs> uh, Rohan was still alive at the end of the Mystery Night, and her Tiroshi connections may have been important uh, to the Blackfire efforts. After all, Tirosh remained the base of operations for the Blackfire throughout this whole period, as far as we can
0: tell. Yeah, even if they weren't getting as much support, or any support, it's, every time we hear about them, it's in Tyrosh. So that clearly is something. Whether or not anyone local is helping them, that's still where they were. Damon Blackfire also had at least two daughters, the elder of whom was betrothed and probably married to Bittersteel himself. This was surely part of the ability to control the family, and the idea that they had kids is tantalizing, but only an idea. We have nothing to go on there. But some of Damon's other kids definitely had kids of their own, Hagon had two sons, at least, maybe more, the eldest of whom was named Damon, and he eventually became the Third. Now, a good percentage of these men, again, probably fought in the Gold Company.
1: And if that's true, then, you know, likely a few of them died doing so as well. But mostly they probably had success because Bittersteel would have been very careful about managing them as young officers, you know, making sure that they were just seasoned enough to be credible without putting them in the really dangerous tasks that could get them killed. And that's the sort of thing that you can do when you are in charge of a large army.
0: <laughs> exactly. And as large as it was becoming, as formidable as it was becoming, they are still going to need a lot of help. 10,000 men is a lot, but it's not enough to take the Iron Throne. They would need some allies, and they had new and old ones to choose from. While fellow exiles make for rather straightforward allies, the Blackfires knew they would need support from lords in Westeros as well. They probably didn't think much of their chances if the whole of Westeros united against them.
1: And so the biggest source of their support would have to come from Westeros itself. And that's tricky because you can't support an exile king openly. That is what treason is. (laughs) Um, So the Blackfires would need people ready to join them to raise the banner of the Black Dragon. To borrow again from uh, Danny and Viserys' experience, they were counting on those people who, according to Illyrio, were sewing dragon banners in secret, waiting to rise for their true king across the sea.
0: Now, Illyrio, of course, was massively exaggerating the truth, which is probably the truth is closer to what Sir Jorah says.
2: Daenerys, three a Game of Thrones. The common people are waiting for him. Magister Illyrio says they are sewing dragon banners and praying for Viserys to return from across the Narrow Sea to free them.
0: The common people pray for rain, healthy children, and a summer that never ends.
2: Sir Jorah told her.
0: It is no matter to them if the High Lords play their game of thrones, so long as they are left in peace."
2: He gave a shrug.
0: They never are.
2: Danny rode along quietly for a time, working his words like a puzzle box. It went against everything that Viserys had ever told her to think that the people could care so little whether a true king or a usurper reigned over them. Yet the more she thought on Jorah's words, the more they rang of truth.
0: Bittersteel, like Danny was not fooled, nor was he the type to rely on hope. He knew the common people would not be the reason the Blackfires won the Iron Throne, but that's the common people. Lords and knights care a lot about who their king is, not only due to reasons of pride or the like, but due to genuine loyalty. In your Blacks and the Red series, you make a great point that a lot of lords showed up at Whitewalls to launch the Second Rebellion, despite what a terrible plan the whole thing was.
1: Right, and the flip side of this question is, you know, people who are in it due to ambition. Sometimes it's as simple as wanting a change at the top due to some policy issue like taxes or settling claim to important titles. Simply put, if you help a king take the throne, that king is expected to reward you, and many ambitious types would be willing to join the Blackfire cause to advance their own interests, not solely out of any sense of duty or honor. They would likely call it a matter of duty and honor, you know, supporting the true king against the false king, and for some of them that would be true, but for many others it would be a cover story for what amounts to pure ambition.
0: Yeah. Many of these types were opportunists, that's another way to put it, and would join whichever side they thought was more likely to win, or sit on the sidelines until the choice became clearer, like Tywin did in Robert's Rebellion. This, Bittersteel knew as well. This is not a, a, some sort of hidden factor of war. It's, a, it's anyone who knows war knows this. Momentum is extremely valuable. And again, we can look to modern examples of this ancient concept. Again, here's Prince Aegon, a.k.a. Young Griff, speaking to the Golden Company. A dance with dragons, the lost lord. I will claim the Iron Throne by myself, with your swords and your allegiance. Move fast and strike hard, and we can win some easy victories before the Lannisters even know that we have landed. That will bring others to our cause. And as we know... That's exactly what they do. They do move fast and take some easy victories so fast it is unclear who they're even fighting for. The Iron Throne is like, wait, is those, are those Stannis's men? Are those, they don't, they don't even know. And they do this despite difficulties beyond their control. The ships don't all land in the same place. They have scattered problems. They have some weather. That results in the Golden Company being separated, but they still accomplish these goals despite these adversities. So... There you go. This is because they're so well-trained, and have been so well-trained, for a long time. The world of ice and fire. Bittersteel gathered exiled lords and knights and their descendants to him. He formed the Golden Company in 212 AC, and soon established it as the foremost free company of the disputed lands. Beneath the gold, the Bittersteel became their battle cry, renowned across Essos. Let's talk about them specifically now. The Golden Company itself.
1: Founding the Golden Company solved several of Igor's biggest problems all at once. first was bringing the band back together. He needed to keep the Black Dragon supporters from scattering all over Essos. And if they all signed up with different companies it would, in order to make a living, it would be very difficult to get them to coalesce once again. Second, forming the Golden Company made them a political factor again. You're not really taken seriously if you're individual exiles, but if all of a sudden you're an army of thousands of trained killers, you now have weight. And then, finally, it gave them a big head start when it came time to the invade Westeros again, because now they have a major chip in their favor, that they have this enormous strength that people who, you know, are potentially wavering in their loyalties might see as a reason to join in on their side. It also saved, solved their money problems by giving them a regular stream of revenue.
0: Yeah, and apparently it was a large group of revenue, which we'll talk about in a little bit later. So let's talk about each of those different factors in turn. First, though, why did it take so long? That one we have a little trouble answering. I mean, they fled to Tyrosh around late 196, early 197, and it took 15 years to get to this point, though. So it may have had to do with the embarrassment of being a sellsword, or perhaps not perceiving the option. I mean, again, it's not a very Westerosi thing to do. But I think a fair conclusion might be the simpler one. Lack of choice. It just, they didn't have other options. So let's talk about Binding the Exiles. The world of ice and fire. Bittersteel saw the strength of House Blackfire scattering to the four winds, so he formed the Golden Company to bind the exiles together.
1: As we saw, as Bittersteel himself joined the Second Sun, some of his fellow exiles joined other seltzer companies. The problem is, you know, if conditions all of a sudden emerge that allow them to make a sudden play for the Iron Throne, how are these other people going to find out about it? How are they going to come together? you know, does Agor go to each different sellsword company and get people to pull out of their contracts? That's rather difficult. And it's not just a matter of talking to people. As we said, these companies make you sign a contract. If you try to up and leave, they're going to consider you a deserter and try to execute.
0: Yeah. There's no better example than and Martell, who wanted revenge so badly after the fact he probably missed Robert's Rebellion thanks to one or both of the above. Probably the former Uh, if he had found out about the war, he would have found a way to get out of his contract, or risk the consequences. I mean, he's rich, he could have bought his way out of it, but it probably wouldn't have come to that. These are sellsword companies after all, so yeah, it's just that simple. But that brings us to an important difference here. As the Golden Company grows and fills out, many, including some of the officers, will have no exile status at all. No lands in Westeros to reclaim, let alone blood ties. They're just sellswords who joined the finest company there is.
1: Not to say that they weren't a cut above the average, because the Golden Company definitely was. And not to say that they were free of the lowest moral common denominator, because they definitely, you know, have that problem, right? There are brutes and cruel men in the Golden Company. But the Golden Company did set higher standards, that most of the people who formed the Brave Companions would not have been allowed in, or would have been subject to a very different standard of discipline.
0: Yeah, the Brave Companion took on guys like Rorge and Biter. Those guys probably wouldn't have gotten into the Golden Company. I imagine more guys like, say, Braun, Although maybe not quite as talented as Braun, that kind of personality. Braun stayed with Tyrion for many reasons, in part because he saw great opportunity for advancement, and Tyrion rewarded merit, and of course he paid well. That sounds a lot like the Golden Company, too.
1: After all, as it does in the real world, money talks, and early on it was an immediate need that Free Cities are constantly fighting one another, there's always contracts to be found either in the disputed lands or elsewhere in Essos, employment is easy to find. So, you know, you can get pretty far by filling people's bellies, but as time goes on, it goes beyond just meeting your immediate needs. You get captains, not just rank-and-file members, who are starting to attain a different material standard of living.
0: A dance with dragons, the lost lord. By any name, the sellswords displayed a rude splendor. Like many in their trade, they kept their worldly wealth upon their persons. Jeweled swords, inlaid armor, heavy torques, and fine silks were much in evidence, and every man there wore a lord's ransom in golden arm rings. Each ring signified one year's service with the Golden Company. Mark Mandrake, whose pock-scarred face had a hole in one cheek where a slave's mark had been burned away, wore a chain of golden skulls as well. The Golden Company is rich now, and were probably rich quickly enough when they formed, though it wasn't a driving force after all, it's just something that kind of happened. With the goal of besting large Western Aussie armies in mind, they needed to be good. That was probably more important. They needed to stand out among sellsword companies, and but to do that, they didn't just treat their employers well by not breaking contracts, they treated their own well, their own employees. A golden arm ring for each year of service, that seems like uh indication of that, that they're treating people well. And that, in turn, would help them attract better men as recruits. There's nothing like winning, and quality leadership, and good pay, to bring in the best. Well, the best of those actually wanting to work for pay. The core of the company, at least back then, was still the Exiles. Westerosi with a focused goal of returning to the Seven Kingdoms. So, while good men are all well and good, (laughs) there were others that made even better allies. Those with whom to make common cause. A company comprised of all those exiles sounds great, but why not have them even more men than that? I mean, to be a force to be reckoned with, to get that seated table, you gotta go big, and that's what Agor did. It's interesting to consider that maybe the Golden Company, though 10,000 men now, might not have been as big then. Of course, it just, just, he didn't just snap his fingers and it became 10,000 men. But it's interesting to think about what size he aimed for in the long run. But even in the early days, there are some hints that it was bigger than average.
1: Now, of course, there were plenty of men who were willing to fight for money and enough who were good at it and reasonably dependable, but again, Agor didn't have to settle for them. There were others who had a genuine desire to fight and shed blood for the company's true aim of getting back to Westeros. And over the years since the first Blackfyre Rebellion, one of the things that the Golden Company has been able to do is sign up exiles in addition to those who fought for the Black Dragon. Think of people like John Connington or Sir Raleigh Duckfield, people who are Westerosi in Essos, who want to get back for reasons of their own.
0: Right. Uh, Another great example is House Toyne, formerly of the Stormlands. The infamous Simon Toyne, who led the Kingswood Brotherhood, doesn't have any apparent ties to the Golden Company, but his kinsman Miles Blackheart Toyne sure did. He became their leader at some point, was friends with John Connington. Now some suspect Blackheart is a sneaky nod to his Blackfyre sympathies as his house was stripped of lands and honors when his ancestors tried to avenge their brother Sir Terence by assassinating King Aegon IV the Unworthy. Sir Terence, of course, was in the Kingsguard. They failed to assassinate King Aegon, but they did kill the famous Aemon the Dragon Knight, one of the most famous knights of all time. Hard to get back in good standing with the Red Dragon after that. But the Black? different story. They might like the fact that he killed Aemon. At
1: least some members of the family managed to escape Westeros to continue on the name, and at least this one toy got to the top job in the Golden Company. As it stands, we don't know of any living Torns, and we don't know if any others joined the company before or after Blackheart, i.e. how many generations was Blackheart in the company. Probably Blackheart and Bittersteel never crossed paths because Aegor would have died Well before Miles Toyn was born, but it's possible that Agor could have recruited Blackheart's Toyn ancestors into the Golden Company by stoking the flame of resentment, by offering the Golden Company as a means to get revenge. You know, saying we can get back your ancestral lands with everything else, and you can sort of see a model of how to bring in other exiles.
0: Yeah, they they had a few things in common. They had some major things in common, really. And though it may have been the other way around, though, maybe they came to Bittersteel and said, "Hey, we're exiles." we'll join you. We hate the Targaryens. You hate the Targaryens. So do we. Blah blah. Yeah, it's just a great situation. So It's a win-win. And that's what we mean. We're talking about that kind of recruit, someone who is already aligned with your goals rather than just some dude who wants to fight for pay. That's why the Golden Company is different and why so many exiles, Blackfyre, Rebellion or not, ended up with them.
1: There probably were a few other unnamed houses that fit this mold. Not so famous to have killed the Dragon Knight, of course. (laughs) But over the years, you know, the Targaryens made not a few enemies. Bloodraven himself is said to have pushed quite a few people from supporting the Red Dragon to the Black Dragon via his harsh totalitarian policies. And may have done so, you know, several times over the years.
0: Yeah, a mutual desire for revenge is perhaps more dependable than a desire to get paid, but neither are enough to win the Iron Throne. The Redgrass Field was a close-run thing. The First Rebellion in general was a close-run thing. Bittersteel knew this as well as anyone. And while the Blackfires would never again have a leader as outstanding as their founder, they instead now had the means to forge a much stronger overall army. So let's look at how Agor led his men so that they became as good as gold as they became to be known. A feast for crows. The Soiled Knight. Sellswords break their contracts all the time.
2: Not the Golden Company. Our word, as good as gold, has been their boast since the days of Bitter Steel. That
0: reputation is strong enough to have been quoted, as you could see, in current times. But, of course, it wasn't with the company when it was born. They had to earn that over the years. And they broke the mold by not breaking contracts, as we said, something extremely common with sellswords. Of course, this generally happens when a group is hired by one side, then offered even more by the other. Your reputation may take some punishment, but you also get paid. <laughs>
1: There's a lot to be said about why Bittersteel ran things this way. If he wanted to maintain political legitimacy and live up to Westerosi moral standards, the title sellsword is already politically toxic enough. Given that there wasn't any way around that, the sellsword route was all they had, they had to make sure that their reputations were otherwise extremely solid. Bittersteel recognized that if they were seen as common sellswords, the dream of the Iron Throne would be reduced to a dream of taking it by pure force, and there wouldn't be very many Westerosi willing to rise for such a king with such an army. Hero warrior king sounds great, cunning sellsword captain doesn't. Damon's reputation for chivalry and honor were a big part of his draw, so this was perhaps a callback to his ideals. It also ensured that they stayed famous as well, that as the Golden Company continued to rack up victories and to maintain their word, that the word of their quality would continue to spread. They were changing... Not just how they ran things, but how the sword game itself ran.
0: Yeah. Not everyone caught on right away, though. <laughs> Some people needed to learn a few lessons, and that maybe even worked out well for the Golden Company. It gave them an opportunity to do exactly that. Cohort, perfect example of how the Free Cities have their own prejudices regarding Sellswords, even though they use them all the time. Also the most important example for the company in terms of showing their prowess, at least from an early date. Cohor thought they could get away with not paying the Golden Company for some contract. We don't know what the contract was, but I imagine they had done this before. They'd stiffed some other sellsword company before, but it didn't work this time. The reference uh, as to what happened is only found in the World of Ice and Fire app, and it states that the Golden Company quickly established their strength via this incident, which was... Uh, maybe around 213 or 214. But anyway, what happened was they sacked Cohor. Wow. I can imagine some in the company, perhaps Bittersteel himself, maybe later sarcastically thanking them for it as, yeah, we're glad you didn't pay us because then we got to sack you and everyone heard about it. Now, no one would ever consider breaking a contract with them again, and their reputation made it known that they wouldn't either. <laughs> After all, not breaking your word is great, but it means a lot less if you're weak. It can be used against you, but if you're strong, no one can take advantage of that. So they notoriously and forever established that they were not weak. <laughs> as a significant added bonus, this was a big enough deal that it would be heard even in Westeros.
1: Right, and it's going to reverberate everywhere it's heard because there's a major cross-reference, right? That's easy to miss. Sacking a city is definitely, you know, going to make news, and that's a good thing. But there's even a bigger point to make for an organization that's trying to market itself as a fighting force, and this is because of the incident of the 3000 of cohort right, the force of Unsullied who had defeated the 25,000 Dothraki, right, it's cohort that used the Unsullied to guard the city ever since this famous incident. And now we have the Golden Company not just sacking any old city, but sacking the unsackable city. And not just defeating any army to do it, but defeating the Unsullied to do it, right? That's a headline.
0: Yes, that is really, yeah, that's something I didn't catch for a while, and it's really big. It's like, whoa, wow, they beat the Unsullied, whoa. <laughs> that really means something. I mean, it's really the only time I can think of that we've seen the Unsullied beat. Well, we didn't see it. but well, we hear of it. So anyway, it's really interesting to see how often when point of views in Essos hear news, the Golden Company's movements are a part of it. It's like a constant thing. Some of that is George R. Martin wanting to remind the readers that they're important. But in world, they truly are important. He's not like... Pushing this outside of what would be normal. A mobile 10,000 man professional army. Yeah, of course people are gonna keep track of where they are That's a really big deal Most sales companies are small enough not to be worth that kind of notice But this is in, in terms of geopolitical stuff The Golden Company always has to be kept track of because whenever one of these free cities goes to war with one of the others, they have to take account the Golden Company. Because if the other side hires it, well, that's a big problem. And if they hire it, well, you're their way ahead. And because their word is as good as gold, you can plan around that. If you're a city that hires the Golden Company, you know they're going to stay loyal. With someone else, you got to worry about whether they'll switch sides. And there's a flip side to that. If you're facing them, well, do worry, because they're coming for you. But at least you won't waste time buying them off. You might It might save you time. You might say, well, they've got the Golden Company on their side. We can't win. Let's settle this now. Uh, so, And if you're far off some way, you know, far off land on a contract, you also don't need to worry about your enemy buying the Golden Company away from their contract and bringing them over. You can't do that. They will not be hired away from a job in progress. So everyone kind of schedules around them. Along with reputation and wealth, they acquired experience, real battlefield experience, something Damon II, for example, did not have. So much of the Black versus Red struggle comes down to having confidence in one side. For many, perhaps most, it wasn't that much about picking the more noble or right king, it was just about being on the right side. So if you can intimidate a few of the people on the fence with the deeds of your battle-hardened force, maybe make them think a bit like the Free Cities. Better to side with that than to try to fight it, you know? We'd rather have the Golden Company as allies than as enemies. And if they haven't taken a side in a rebellion, well, that's that's what you're waiting for, to see who comes out ahead.
1: With that in mind, you want proven warriors with you, ideally well-known. Bittersteel already was that, and so were some of the other exiles. But their time in the Golden Company had vastly increased that. It gave them credibility, which is perhaps extra important, because they'd already lost two rebellions, although only one of those decided you know, in battle. So, local Blackfyre supporters had tried to make Bl- Damon II look like a warrior by helping him win a tournament, and that was pretty weak. By comparison, his brother Hagon, next in the Blackfyre line of succession, the fourth son of Damon Se- I, seems to have been cut from a different cloth than Damon II. He was the one that bitter steel back, after all, and it was doubtful that Bittersteel would get behind someone who wasn't a warrior. So I'm going to guess that Hagon spent quite a bit of time fighting in the Golden Company and earned some respect among his men in those early years after the Golden Company first formed.
0: Yeah, but uh, that's a guess. I'd say that's a safe guess, but certainly not certain. He may have stayed in Tyrosh sipping hippocras and watching reruns of That's So Bloodraven while Aegor was out forging the Golden Company in blood by himself. But... Since he, unlike his brother, wielded the Conqueror's sword and, of course, had the backing of Agor, Well, you can see why we favor the former guest. Now, he didn't come with a dream or talk. He came with an army. This wasn't a tournament or a well-made argument. This was an invasion. This was the Third Blackfire Rebellion. We occasionally have sponsors, but it's inconsistent. Patreon solves that problem for us by making you the sponsor find the link to sign up at historyofwestros.com along with a lot of other ways to support the show and a lot of goodies from the fandom this episode is brought to you fittingly enough by our sellsword captains including peter blaze of the emerald isle captain of the werewood wanderers to long lives quick deaths cold beer and warm women Dagron, marshal of the axe captain of the red tide resistance is futile garian pike wielder of grave embrace a valyrian steel axe and captain of the iron wave iron's kiss is eternal Kyron calsbane captain of the stone shields the torrent breaks upon the stone. Captain Kithik Deadeye of the Scarlet Longbows, pierced by darkness. Kerbouchard, captain of the Walking Drum, Yol Bolsan, may there be a road. And Hema Helminth, captain of the Whispering Children, whose motto is, Dead men tell no secrets. As we're seeing with the Golden Company in current times, and with Daenerys, invading is complicated. There's a lot of planning, there's a lot of expense, and the current state of affairs has to become, or has to be conducive rather than detrimental. A simple example of this concept is, well, it's obviously no good to send your army over on ships when the other side is well prepared to sink your ships. It's a situation where both sides have a lot of power, but neither can really use it. They sit there and wait for a mistake by the other side while working behind the scenes to create. Such an opening. It's like the Cold War. It's a great parallel, I think, because the real live Cold War between the USA and the USSR was not characterized by battles. It was characterized by both sides having enough power to destroy the other with nukes, but not before the other side could launch l- nukes of their own and creating mutual destruction. Part of this analogy doesn't fit because there's no nukes, the dragons were kind of the equivalent. But of course, there's no dragons here. But the concept of a big stalemate. That fits really well.
1: Right. Provocation leads to war. War risks the deaths of many. And as we've said, invading is tricky business, especially invading by sea, because you run the risk of getting caught against the water and potentially wiped out. Bloodraven would have loved it if Bittersteel had attacked a prepared and alert Seven Kingdoms, because this would have given him the advantage and possibly allowed him to wipe out the Golden Company in one go. Right? On the other hand, you know, the Blackfires eventually did invade. So we know that they managed to get some sort of opening, whether they forced that opening or whether it just, you know, came due to circumstances. It's one of the many details that we don't have specifically, but that we know must have happened.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's straight up common sense that picking the right time is critical and that the stuff with navies and all that is fairly straightforward. So we know, so we, we don't know what happened, but we know that these factors were in play. Now, compared to the flat-out dumb aspects of the plan for the Second Rebellion, even they got this part right, as in the timing. They had good timing. Bloodraven was hated, Ares was mistrusted, some parts of the realm were ravaged by Dagon Greyjoy, and clearly not happy with the Crown for not helping, and the plague's impact, the Great Spring Sickness, that is, was still felt as well. So all those things put together were great conditions for an invasion, but obviously at that time there was no Golden Company, so they couldn't invade even if they had wanted to. So the point is that Bittersteel needed conditions to line up as well as possible. So while you can't threaten nuclear bombs or Great Spring sicknesses, you can influence your events to your advantage as much as possible, like Cold War style, via espionage. Now that word, along with our talk of the USSR and nuclear bombs, may put you in mind of modern spy characterizations. Espionage sounds like a modern word. But let's not forget, the old term for this concept is cloak and dagger. that makes it sound like old school. That makes it sound more medieval. And it sounds exactly like what we're talking about. It's a hidden identity and a hidden threat. The cloak and the dagger. Consider the effect of a key death, an assassination, or just a death at the right moment. Like the Redgrass Field, where Damon himself fell due to arrows. Bloodraven knew exactly what he was doing. A Dance with Dragons, the Lost Lord. Strickland shook his head stubbornly. The risk is not what it was. Now that Tywin Lannister is dead, the Seven Kingdoms will never be more ripe for conquest. Another boy king sits the Iron Throne, this one even younger than the last, and rebels are thick upon the ground as autumn leaves. Something we'll talk more about in the Bloodraven episode is the evidence that his green sight came after his days at court, and one of the pieces of evidence for that is this persistent presence of Blackfyre loyalists within the Red Keep. If he had greensight, you'd think he might be able to sniff them out somehow, but he clearly didn't. So we're calling this hidden element the Black Keep. Hey, it totally fits. Leave me alone. A particularly notorious event that perhaps best proves the presence of Blackfire spies and informants at court comes later, but we're going to take a line from it now to set the stage. The world of ice and fire. The Blackfires still had many friends at court, some of them only too willing to play the informer. Now, some curious deaths and odd events that helped set up the Third Rebellion strongly suggest this presence earlier in the timeline. These
1: spies probably answered to Bittersteel. Note that when Sir Duncan the Tall overhears Lord Peak plotting at Whitehall's, he overhears names that are expected to join their cause. And this is said in response to doubt. Doubt over Daemon II, the lack of Blackfire the Sword, and a lack of support from Bittersteel himself. So if Gorman Peake knew of spies at court, I think he'd mention them and he wouldn't have to give names, but it would assure
0: his allies of their chances at a time when it was very needed. Another possibility is that these spies came later, after Bittersteel had more resources, i.e. revenue, from a few years running the company. Remember, at this time, he was probably pretty poor. It sounds like the CEO of the Golden Company, though, would have a few extra bucks, though, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think he'd have plenty. The Golden Company has a spy master now, for example, Lyson Omar, unlike other salesforce companies, as far as we know. Now, even men like John Connington and Stannis are willing to use bribery when they must, and Bittersteel probably had fewer scruples than they. Uh, There's certainly no reason to think he was above it. And he was up against his brother, the Master of Whispers slash Hand of King, Hand of the King, (laughs) a man with at least some magical ability, even in these times, though he probably didn't have the green sight yet.
1: That in itself is a question, right? What did Bittersteel think of his brother's magic? Like Stannis, I suspect that he probably took it seriously if the evidence was there. You know, his informers in court may have had a few things to say in the subject, certainly he would have been familiar with the rumors that were floating around the Red Keep, and Aegor would have had to weigh their words against what other sources said. Certainly, it was an open secret that Brynden Rivers had been named Hand of the King, in part because King Eris and he shared a common interest in the arcane and the occult. This was a weakness as well, something to exploit, that, you know, Raven was not very popular, and you know, he was whispered to be ruling through Eris, so you can sort of tie these two things in together, and Bittersteel could use this information to craft a reputation for Bloodraven that would cause people to react with fear and distrust as opposed to respect.
0: Hmm. Now they could claim victory over infamous foes like, well, the Unsullied. They could say they never broke a contract. But surely Bloodraven had a few things to say about this. Word would reach Westeros about the deeds of the Golden Company, but, you know, someone like Bloodraven might be able to spin it a little bit. He might be able to put his own words or perhaps spread false stories. And after all, these are sellswords, and knights look down on that aggressively. So he could just spin things a little bit and make it seem like, you know, these guys weren't all they're were cracked up to be, or just remind people that, hey, these are sellswords, that kind of thing. Now, spies are useful. But a key death or two is what the Blackfires really needed. So what they could make a lot of use of are assassins if they could find them. Uh, The one key death needed was one of their own, Damon II. They needed him to die so that Hagon could become king. You can't claim the throne from your own brother. That, of course, doesn't play at all. That's traitors. That's dishonorable. It just doesn't work that way. Now, we don't know how Damon II died. Uh, It's certainly possible that he just died on his own, but it's not terribly likely because he was young and the Iron Throne wanted him to stay alive. They wanted him to be that buffer. So uh, you would think that they would actively keep him alive. So it is tempting to think that someone removed that buffer, uh, as in killed him.
1: And that wouldn't be an easy feat. I mean, they have to get into the most heavily guarded cells of of the Red Keep. They have to kill somebody that Bloodraven himself, who is, you know, in charge of all of this, wants to keep alive, so it wouldn't be a simple affair. Um, And another kind of thing that I think is interesting about all of this is thinking about Damon II, right? This is someone who has constant dragon dreams. Did he foresee his own death? Did he see a fire-breathing horse burning him or carrying him off to safety? You know, Damon II was an awfully optimistic dude, especially when it came to prophecies.
0: That's true. He found, maybe he found a way to dream, of, dream positive dreams or spin them into something it's like, yeah, he's coming to rescue me. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> maybe he dreamt of a golden skull and a pike. Maybe this will come up in Duncan, Duncan Egg or Fire and Blood. But he, one way or another, he died or was killed, and an important thing went the Fires away. They caught a break. But there were other deaths in between the Second and Third Rebellions among the royal family that changed the picture. Aerys himself had no children, and his brother Rhaegal was the heir, followed by Rhaegal's son, Aelor. But Rhaegal died in 215, and Aelor in 217. So on the surface, one might think the Blackfires cheered those deaths, or maybe even arranged them, but I don't think it helped their cause. Bittersteel probably didn't want Regal dead, he was mad, and a crazy king would probably help their chances, swaying support to their side, causing confusion, or just giving bad orders. And Alor's death made Makar the heir, and he was the worst possibility of all from the Blackfire perspective, a formidable warrior king in the making. And Ares was a weakling. Do you see where this is going?
1: And perhaps this explains part of the timing of the Third Rebellion, that Bittersteel saw that after the death of Aelor, frail, childless Aerys is not going to be counted on to keep living for a long period of time, and therefore Makar is likely going to become king. If they didn't seize the chance to strike while a weak, unpopular king was on the throne, a strong king could take his place soon, possibly very soon, and then they would not get another chance.
0: That's right. Uh, So the invasion came anywhere from two years after the death of Aelor to as little as just over a year. Again, Aelor died in 217, the invasion came in 219, but for all we know it was early 219 and late 217. Anyway, the Golden Company had been molded for about seven years at that point, and it had been 23 since the Redgrass Field, so it had been a while. So again, we're going to compare Bittersteel to John Comington, but that's just because it keeps working really well. A Dance with Dragons, the Lost Lord. The road ahead was full of perils, he knew, but what of it? All men must die. All he asked was time. He had waited so long. Surely the gods would grant him a few more years, enough time to see the boy he called a son seated on the Iron Throne, to reclaim his lands, his name, his honor, to still the bells that rang so loudly in his dreams whenever he closed his eyes to sleep. Now, Agor may very well have thought of Hagon as a son, too, and he was literally his nephew, so it was a family connection, and was, in fact, probably married to his sister. So, close ties, any way you look at it. Now, still didn't have grayscale, like Connington, of course. Well, not as far as we know, <laughs> but he was getting old, so he might have been thinking that same kind of thing about his time being short. Well, he'd be wrong, because at the time, he was about 47, and he ended up living to age 70. So, yeah, but anyway, at this point, Connington's about 39. And instead of Connington dreaming of his failure at the Battle of the Bells, maybe Aegor dreamt of Werewood arrows killing Damon, or not. Uh, just something. He may have been haunted by failures and close calls. That's surely not a stretch whether he had dreams of them or not. Both of them had a long time in exile for these thoughts to percolate, for them to think about revenge. And so when that moment finally came for them to start, it must have really felt special. 18 years for Connington before his journey started again, 23 for Bittersteel.
1: And with so much else in common, another thing that we can consider is whether the fate of Bittersteel is going to be the fate of John Connington, that perhaps the things that went wrong for the Blackfires is gonna be similar to what's gonna go wrong for those fighting for Aegon the Sixth now, especially if we think that Aegon the Sixth might be a Blackfire.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's just a really interesting and compelling idea with a bevy of possible parallel ideas, bloodlines, concepts, etc. Unfortunately, we lack many of the major details as to what actually transpired during the Third Rebellion itself, so I've come to call this thing as George and the Giant Tees. The world of ice and fire. In 219 AC, Hegon Blackfire, and Bittersteel launched the Third Blackfire Rebellion. Of the deeds done then, both good and ill, of the leadership of Makar, the actions of Arian Bright Flame, the courage of Makar's youngest son, and the second duel between Bloodraven and Bittersteel, we know well. The pretender Hagon I, Blackfire, died in the aftermath of battle, slain treacherously after he'd given up his sword. But Sir Agor Rivers, Bittersteel, was taken alive and returned to the Red Keep in chains. We know well? You bastards. We do not know well. We know nothing. <laughs> We're all Jon Snows here. Many in the fandom regard this dodge, we'll call it, as evidence that George R. R. Martin plans on giving us this detail in a future Dunkin' Egg novel. We'll go farther and say this is almost a sure thing, really, because the line, the courage of our son that we just heard in the quote, that's egg. That's literally egg. So, of course, that's going to appear in Dunkin' Egg eventually, you would think, right? So we have that to look forward to, though, I don't want to get your hopes up. It's not... Gonna be the next Duncan Egg book. Uh, it probably won't even be the one after, though. That is possible. I'm gonna guess it's gonna be around the sixth. Uh, the last Duncan Egg was around two eleven. Third Black Fair Rebellion again is in two nineteen. So yeah, there could be a time jump that big, but I would guess it's gonna be a little later down the line. Okay, so let's talk about this, Stephen. I think we both agree that the third rebellion was probably their best chance. Well, maybe not counting the first. Uh, of uh, counting the succession, the successive rebellions.
1: Yeah, all of, out of all of the, the successive rebellions, the Blackfyre, the third one, seemed to be the case in which they had the most support from the mainland, the sort of weakest situation among the Targaryens. We definitely know that it was the longest of the wars, um, you know yeah. that it was multiple battles, right? The Fourth Rebellion only took one battle. The Fifth Rebellion never got to Westeros itself. So it seems like the Blackfires kind of hit their high water mark during the third
0: rebellion. Or you could say high fire mark. Uh-huh. Uh. Um, yeah, no, you shouldn't say that. I'll say that. Leave the torrible puns to me. <laughs> now, uh, but there's a lot of interesting details surrounding this. Of course, that quote gave us some tantalizing possibilities, but there's some other details elsewhere. For for example, we know the Ironwoods fought in this rebellion, and Ironwoods are a major power. And of course, they've been they've long wanted to get back at the Martells for taking what they thought was theirs. They always had themselves ranked higher and they've always been mad about that. But there's more there's, here's a here's a miniature quote from the World of Ice and Fire about a certain Greyjoy The World of Ice and Fire of Torwin Greyjoy who swore a blood oath with Bittersteel then betrayed him to his enemies Now we don't know whether he betrayed Bittersteel in this rebellion or in the fourth. It possibly even happened in the first which is I don't see how but it's possible I don't I really don't see how but I can't say it's completely impossible so what would that mean to the Greyjoy betraying Bittersteel I wonder what that blood oath was I wonder how he betrayed him I wonder if that's how he was captured because Bittersteel was captured
1: okay so you know another detail that we know about the third blackfire rebellion is that it involved the second duel between Bittersteel and Bloodraven so you know my my feeling is you know Bittersteel won the first duel. Bloodraven won the second. So he was probably captured on the spot.
0: Okay, that might make a lot of sense. Yeah, I could see that happening. Yeah, if it was, if it wasn't that, then maybe, maybe that's what Torwin Greyjoy did. Maybe he turned him in after an, an escape. Maybe it was the, the Greyjoys were helping the Golden Company get away, and then Bittersteel, and Torwin, turned him in. Something like that. A lot of possibilities. Another very interesting quote that comes from here is that Hagon was executed. After giving up his sword. And we just talked about his sword being Blackfire itself, which might mean that this is where the Blackfires lost Blackfire. Now, the problem here is we still don't know where Blackfire is. We don't hear about it at any point after this. There's some hints, there's some allegations, there's some rumors. Well, not even really. There aren't even really rumors. There aren't even really allegations. We don't know what happened to it. It's a big mystery. But if they lost it here, that might explain some future events. If they didn't lose it here, then that makes the mystery even deeper. Where the heck is it? <laughs>
1: yeah, i I'd lean more towards the latter because you'd think if they'd lost it at the point where they get captured, then the Targaryens would take repossession of it, right? This belongs to Aegon the Conqueror. It's mine now.
0: And they would uh, trumpet it. They'd be like, yes, we have oh, the yeah. sword again, yeah.
1: That would be a huge sort of symbolic blow to the Blackfire cause. So, you know, my guess is that at the same time that Agor Rivers makes his escape, the Blackfire sword somehow manages to disappear from the Red Keep.
0: Yeah, maybe it was stolen, again, recaptured, maybe it was part of, you know, Bittersteel's great escape somehow, which we're going to talk about in a minute. So, who knows? It's basically an open mystery, a cool mystery. Another thing that happened here, though, was the execution of Hagon. That was really something. That's Apparently, uh, didn't go well, or we would, as we would uh, g- guess. That's not how you normally behave. So we're going to think that it was probably Arian Brightflame himself who did that. That's our top guess. Of course, there's a lot of other possibilities. But he's a great pick. He was, you know, only about, I guess, third in the line of succession at this point. He was, Daron was dead by then, so he was er- Makar's oldest son. And of course, he always thought he could get away with things like that. But it may have had a side effect. Murdering Hagon after he surrendered, or after he was captured, may be part of why Agor himself was not executed. Ares decided to send him to the wall instead of killing him. Now, part of that might be because technically they're kin, and that would be kinslaying. So he didn't want to be a kinslayer. He's already an unpopular king. Blood Ravens already unpopular. You already have Hagon executed, kind of dishonorably, and now you don't want to. You don't want to pile kinslaying on top of all that. So that might be why. You have any uh, any thoughts on that?
1: Well, uh, I think that's, you know, that seems like the most likely possibility to me, especially since the quote points out that it was Aaron calling for Bittersteel to be executed. You know, if it had been somebody who didn't have blood on his hands, maybe the king would have agreed, but you've got this guy who just disgraced you, you know, publicly, being the one leading the charge for this guy's execution, you can't be seen to give in to that because then you are retroactively legitimating murder.
0: Yeah, let's look at the full quote here as to how this played out. The world of Ice and Fire. Many still insist that if he had been put to the sword then and there, as Prince Arian and Bloodraven urged, it might have meant an early end to the Blackfire ambitions. But that was not to be though bittersteel was tried and found guilty of high treason king ares spared his life instead commanding that he be sent to the wall to live out his days as a man of the night's watch that proved a foolish mercy for the blackfire still had many friends at court some of them only too willing to play the informer the ship carrying bittersteel and a dozen other captives was taken in the narrow sea on the way to Eastwatch by the sea and agor rivers was freed and returned to the golden company before the year was out he crowned hagon's eldest son as king damon the third blackfire in tyrosh and resumed his plotting against the king who had spared him. Wow, right? We need a lil John in here or something because that escape is like, what? That is just awesome. I mean, that was like it's, it's almost out of a comic book. He's not a villain, but he really escapes like one.
1: <laughs> yeah, and you know, over the years the Golden Company are going to make a number of successful retreats, always managing to escape back across the narrow sea intact, but this is really the pinnacle of the tradition because you have both the Golden Company and its leadership escaping intact, independently, which is astonishing.
0: Yeah, and it's kind of neat to see that it wasn't just him. He's the one that's mentioned, but it says, and some other captives, which may have been other high officers. I doubt they were, if they weren't Blackfire members or Golden Company members, I doubt they would have even been mentioned. So, yeah, so it sounds like not only Bittersteel was spared for the wall, it sounds like some of the others were spared as well to go to the wall, and that certainly blew up in their face. It's important to note, again, though, that this is still Tyrosh. The quote says they went back to Tyrosh. So, We talked about how their favors and their fortunes fell in Tyrosh, but a lot of time had passed, and now the Golden Company is powerful, and they have, you know, their big deal. So, it's possible that the Tyroshi support started to come back a bit because of how important they were. Maybe Rohan was still alive, maybe her father, the former Archon, maybe he's still in the picture, too. It's also kind of hard to know, though, on the flip side, what kind of losses they were rebuilding from. Like, how many men died? How many members of the Golden Company were killed? Uh, Not just them, but their allies. And how much gold did they spend? You know, I imagine the gold probably didn't matter that much because, again, with their reputation, they could get that money back. They could spend a few years collecting contracts, filling the coffers back up. But only two years later, well before they could think of invading again, King Arius was dead.
1: And as a result, it would be 15 years before the next invasion. Bittersteel's distance from Westeros for so long appears to play out in that we get much less a sense of what he's up to as time goes on. That, you know, with Daemon II, Second, is clearly calling the shots to the extent that Blackfyre the Sword stayed with him during the Second Rebellion. With Hagon, we're a little bit less sure. We know that he crowned him. We know that he crowned his son. But beyond that, we don't have much information.
0: Yeah, I mean, he had to have maintained some level of authority, a pretty high-level authority, because he's still the commander of the Golden Company, and that still carries a lot of weight no matter what. But, by this time, he may have had some other strong personalities in the picture. Maybe some of the other Blackfire kids had come into their own, and there may have been people talking about how he had failed several times now. It's not working. So, I got to think his authority would be a little less. Maybe a lot less. But, again, it couldn't be that far down, because he's the commander of the company still. So we should move on here and consider some of these other characters because it's time to move on to the fourth Blackfyre Rebellion and the years that preceded it. So like we said, two years after the, the, second, the third Rebellion, Ares was dead. Fifteen years later, Bittersteel returned to Westeros, so altogether 17 years. And we know less of that time period than the first 23-year exile that he spent in Essos. Surely there were plenty of contracts for the Golden Company and the usual politicking and spying and plenty of other things we don't know about. It was a long time, but it was probably more of the same for the most part. But there were two huge known obstacles that would prevent an invasion, or at least make it a lot more difficult, that came during this time that we do know of. And this does at least give us a partial picture to build around. So those two things were Makar and Winter.
1: Now we've already given you an idea of why Makar was bad news for Blackpire, that he was a competent warrior, that he had a, you know, a reputation. Um, and as said before, you know, he's kind of a proto stannis which says a lot.
0: Yeah, that's, you know, Stannis is not going to be rolled over easily and that he's not going to be lax. So we'll get a better look at him in the Bloodraven episode though, because that'll be from, from Bloodraven's side of things, it will have been a closer run thing, uh, Bittersteel's side. He's going to have only heard things, maybe from his spies. Anyway, Makar reigned for about 12 years, and there were no Blackfire rebellions during that time. The third was two years before, the fourth about three years after. But a certain family that was heavily invested in the Blackfires from the start, well, they did rebel against Makar. This was House Peak, as in the ancestors of Lord Gorman Peak, who was the main player in both of the first two Blackfire rebellions. In 233, they rose up.
1: And it's a big mystery as to why the Peaks, who couldn't win against the Iron Throne with the Fires on their side, thought that they could do it on their own. Although the fact that it was, you know, the peak uprising was during winter was interesting. It may have been part of their logic that they thought, okay, a big army is going to starve if it tries to besiege us. We have smaller numbers. We can last longer. You know, but at the end of the day, they lost, and they lost badly because their their final remaining castle, Starpike, gets stormed as opposed to just <laughs> starved out.
0: Yeah, and Stephen, you have a theory on the situation. It's something puzzling. There's a couple of puzzling things about this, and you have a kind of an idea as to how it might make sense.
1: Yeah. So my theory is that I don't think the Peak Uprising was meant to be just an uprising, pure and simple. I think it was something a lot closer to an assassination attempt on Makar because. You know, as strong as Makar was individually, his sons are kind of a mess. And so the succession after him would be a mess. And Bittersteel would have known, and the Peaks would have known, that Makar was kind of a lead-from-the-front kind of guy, and especially since, you know, he was a warrior king who had ruled for 12 years of peace, that he might be getting restless and might be close enough, you know, to the action to actually get taken out. And you look at what happens, you know, he... Makar gets killed directly under the walls of Pike, that they manage to just drop a giant boulder on his head.
0: So it seems like a disaster for the Peaks, but if the goal was to kill Makar, then it was actually a success in a lot of ways. It's odd, you know, maybe he just got too close. I mean, that's not uncommon for warrior kings, but this isn't like falling in battle. This is under siege. I mean, the rebellion was basically over. So it's really interesting, and uh, but also a bit puzzling. It's, it's a little bit like Richard the Lionheart, who was also killed during a fairly meaningless siege that was pretty much won at the time. It was just a wrap-up thing. So it's uh, it's cool, though. As a side note, the Peaks must really be entrenched down there because, I mean, they are a really, really old family, but they've rebelled a lot of times, and they're still a peak ruling Starpike, though you don't really hear about them at all during the War of Five Kings or much during the main series now, so they're probably really not very powerful. They probably have their castle and very little land around it. But there's also Peaks in the Golden Company, and they claim to have connections in Westeros still. A dance with dragons, the lost lord. Laswell Peak wrapped his knuckles on the table. Even after a century, some of us still have friends in the Reach. The power of Highgarden may not be what Mace Tyrell imagines. A lot of people mention this quote, and rightly so, because the question of who will betray the Tyrells is a really juicy, fun question. But this history is part of what you need to find that total picture to answer that question. Of all the ancient families George R. R. Martin has placed in the current Golden Company, House Peak is the one that most loudly screams Blackfire history, Blackfire connections. It's the main thing they're known for in the Song of Ice and Fire fandom. So I don't think it's an accident that George used a peak to give that line.
1: It may seem far-fetched for these grudges and claims and ambitions to span so many generations, but the Peaks really embody something here that people who have grown up in the modern age don't really understand, that in a feudal society, lordship is about more than lands and title, it's about being almost a demigod, that you are not bound by the law, that you dispense judgment and you have the power of life and death in your hands, and you can see how something like that would become addictive, that the loss of it would be something that you stew over for hundreds of years and they always trying to get back to.
0: To me this goes very far in explaining why they would take such gambles, such risks. Because even if your theory is accurate about drawing Maycar out, that Lord Peak still had to believe. He had to be convinced to go along with this plan that was very risky. On the other hand, Lord Gorman, his plan, well it was terrible. So maybe that's just something that the peaks of that era were were about. Bad planning. <laughs> something that ran in the family for a while. Now, though the Peak Uprising is nothing historically compared to the Blackfire Rebellions, the Blackfires never killed a king, and the Peak Uprising did, so that's not nothing. And that indirectly led to some uncertainty, as well as the end of Bloodraven. Because, like Richard the Lionheart, Makar didn't have a clear heir. Richard himself lived long enough to name one, but Makar's head was crushed by a stone, and, and talking to his pulped head got no answers. <laughs>
1: It would be very interesting to know why Makar never cleared up the succession of who his heir should be during his lifetime, especially when he's going to war in person. Uh, for a long time, the heir would have been Aeron Brightflame, and if he had ascended, the Blackfires might have, you know, welcomed the chance to take it, take the Iron Throne from such an unpopular person. Unfortunately, they didn't have to face that issue of the throne passing to a monster, because the problem was, okay, the monster's out of the picture. Now, who's the the king? So, in these cases where the succession is unclear, precedent called for a great council. And they held to that precedent. They called a great council. Bloodraven presided over it. So, we're going to take a closer look at that during his uh, episode. Uh, There were a lot of interesting characters, a lot of political ramifications.
0: Yeah, we'll definitely cover that more in greater detail later. But for now, we'll look at it from the Blackfyre side, which was that it might have been a great time to invade, given this level of uncertainty But Westeros was also suffering through a winter that began before even that peak rebellion and ended years after this great council. One of these interesting characters that Stephen refers to is Aenys Blackfyre. Though he wasn't the leader of any of the rebellions, he was actually the next Blackfyre to make a play for the Iron Throne. It's not considered one of the rebellions, although it had more in common with Daemon II's run than the other four, probably. Anyway, he was the fifth son of Daemon. And lost out to the fifth king Aegon called Aegon the Unlikely, uh, who deserves, so he deserves a similar name, right? There are fifths and fifths, so let's call him Aenis the Really Unlikely and talk about him for a minute.
1: It's really interesting to consider the family dynamics here. You know, according to the, the Blackfire succession, Damon III was the rightful king on the Iron Throne as Aegon's eldest son. So it's quite possible that Aenys sent his letter to the Great Council without alerting his family. You know, trying to essentially cut in line. And this reminds me a lot of Daemon II, who, again, you know, took his actions to try to seize the Iron Throne without any support from his family or his patrons and essos. Perhaps Daemon III was off with a golden company somewhere, and Anus took his chance to slip across the narrow sea in his absence.
0: Yeah, uh, like I said, it remem- re- resembled the Second Rebellion in many ways because it was... Almost entirely peaceful, especially that it relied heavily on convincing important people rather than you know beating them in in a fight or something. For that reason, I suspect Aeneas Blackfire was a charismatic man, maybe even a strong orator. He he. Uh, on one hand, it might seem like this was this was like a little crazy play coming in and trying to talk his way onto the throne. But on the other hand, if he wasn't good at it, if he wasn't a good talker, if he didn't have like a convincing line of reasoning. Why did Bloodraven take such extreme dishonorable measures to execute him? I'm thinking, you know, Damon I had all this incredible martial skill and he had this incredible charisma. Maybe Anus had this charisma. He probably didn't have, you know, the warrior spirit that his father had, but he may have had this level of charisma and he may have been much better at, say, talking. Again, the sixth education comes to mind. He sat in Tyrosh all this time. He could have gone to say, an orator class or whatever. He had some sort of tutors to make him more courtly or maybe at least a talent for it.
1: Right, regardless of what the case was, when he heard of the Great Council, Anus made a case to them that as the fifth son of Daemon, uh, Blackfire, he was a better choice than... Aegon the Unlikely, or Baby Magor, or any of the other claimants. And he he must have thought that he had a real chance.
0: And I feel like Bloodraven saw it that way too, or at least he saw it as a chance to take out another Blackfire. All along, he may have just been thinking, oh, I'm going to get this guy. (laughs) How do you think he argued his claim? I I wonder if maybe he even offered to marry one of the Targaryen princesses. There was Shara, a uh, seven-year-old Shara, which she would have been around seven. There would have Egg's daughter, Egg's daughter. And there's also Denara, Dinora, I guess, Rhaegal's daughter. And maybe Makar's other daughters were around as well. So, I don't know. What do you think he would have said? What do you think his case would have been?
1: I think his main case would have been peace and unity. That he could have said, look, you know, we've been at war for generations now. You know, the gods are not smiling on the line of Daron II. second. That, you know, it's been one succession crisis after the other. This is a chance to not only decide the succession, but also to end the wars. I mean, that's the one thing that he could claim that no other claimant could claim, is to say, if you elect me, the Blackfire wars are over.
0: Yeah. I think he was... I I think we're going to find out. It'll be a while before we find out this full story, but I think this is another thing that that should appear in Duncan Egg in the very long run. Of course, this will be Egg right as he's becoming king, so it's pretty far down the Duncan Egg timeline. But wow, it would be really cool. And remember that Egg was the one that Damon II dreamed of during the Second Rebellion when he thought he was himself going to be the one who hatched. Wouldn't it be ironic or tragic or neat at very least if Anis himself also had some kind of dragon dream he dreamed himself hatching at the Red Keep and it was the same thing that just turned out to be dreaming of Egg again? That's ah, probably not going to go that way, but I like thinking about it that way. But anyway, so we'll get the full story one day, I hope. For now, this is what we know. The world of ice and fire. Yet hardly had he entered the city than the gold cloak seized hold of him and dragged him to the Red Keep where his head was struck off forthwith and presented to the Lords of the Great Council as a warning to any who might still have Blackfire sympathies. So that's an interesting way to remind us that Blackfire sympathies were still a thing even after that failed Third Rebellion. But the action... That Bloodraven took here, trying to push the Blackfires back even more, it may have had the opposite effect.
1: Right. I mean, this was such a patently unjust execution, a murder, you know, in violation of the oldest customs of envoys and, you know, oath keeping, etc., that it probably emboldened the Blackfires because it's once again it's taking that old grievance and it's adding something fresh to it. And so three years later they invade it. It probably would have been sooner if it wasn't for the fact that there was this brutal winter that ran from 2.30 to 2.35, which is a hell of a time to invade. I mean, think of what Stannis is going through in the snow and now add water and, you know, winter storms uh, in the narrow sea on top of that. You kind of get a a picture that way.
0: Definitely, yeah. I bet they wish they could have gone sooner, but yeah, it just wasn't possible. It looks like they took the chance as soon as they could, uh, I guess. And it may have seemed like a great time. May have seemed like things were lining up for them. Aegon V, he had a long reign, but he wasn't popular with the lords, remember. He was seen as a bit of a commoner, too friendly with the commoners. And they were right. Once he became king, he started changing the laws. He started taking power away from the lords, giving more rights to the commoners. In general, he was a pro-commoner, which is kind of funky in a sense if you think about the politics. Now, a Blackfire king might have been able, might have been willing to roll back some of these things to the old way, like Tywin did, or like Damon himself was trying to do. Or so they might tell their prospective allies, like, hey, put me on the throne and, and you know, I'll take things back to the way, I'll make Westeros great again. Now, Bittersteel must have played a key role here as well. Not just as the Captain General, but regardless of his relationship with the Third, he himself was still the man with contacts in Westeros. So again, we talked earlier about where he was at with his fortunes and how people viewed him given his failures. But in, in any case, he may have reached out to these possible allies via subtle means during the years after Aeneas' execution, looking to see like who would still support them, or to at least gauge what that level of support might be if people weren't willing to commit. Either way, it looks like they thought they had it. So here comes Rebellion number four, invasion number two. Since Melee's technically never landed on Westeros, and Daemon the First Army rose entirely, or almost entirely, on Westeros, only two of the Four Rebellions actually got to invade Westeros. Unless you count Aegon the (laughs) Sixth, which we might, we might should. But let's not for now, since he's not actually calling himself Blackfire, whether he is or not. So there remained two, and his was the second here. The son of Aegon, the first grandson of Daemon the First to be crowned. The world of ice and fire. In 236 AC, the pretender Daemon Blackfyre, third of his name, crossed the Narrow Sea and landed upon Massey's Hook with Bittersteel and the Golden Company, intent on taking the Iron Throne. King Aegon V summoned the lords from all across the Seven Kingdoms to oppose him, and the Fourth Blackfyre Rebellion began.
1: Now, Massey's Hook is a seemingly really bad place to land. It's an isolated peninsula. It's very easy to get cut off you have a long march to king's landing there's only one road that they can take and it's a longer march than they could have had if they'd landed somewhere else and it's also one that cut them off from their allies right they're a long way from the ironwoods they're a long way from the reach etc and an important detail is that a royal army was mustered in time to meet them at wenwater bridge that's a very fast response especially given that the golden company is known for and we've seen them in uh, a dance with dragon of moving very fast. Um, So either the Blackfires moved unusually slowly or the Targaryens moved unusually quickly. Both are possible. Um, And there's a number of fitting reasons that could explain this, some of which, which are, you know, as we've seen throughout this episode, are suggested by the current storyline.
0: Right. The Golden Company in current times had their landing severely impacted by storms and, you know, not fully committed guys on the ship since it wasn't their ships. (laughs) So a lot of the ships got separated, a lot of the others got delayed. Now, the separated groups adjusted to the circumstances really well by attacking unprepared castles. And, they, you know, they had no intention of going straight for the Iron Throne in the first place, like Bittersteel probably did in the Fourth Rebellion, so that's a major difference. But, with the lack of manpower, i.e. the storms that he's imagining, he'd have to wait, even if it cost him the element of surprise. And well, that's bad. He either wanted to move quickly it'd go straight for the throat, which is why they landed so close to the Iron Throne, or so close, so close to King's Landing, but then they moved slowly. So, something went wrong.
1: Another possibility could be that Greyjoy betrayal. The blood oath to Buttersteel that was that was uh, broken. And it's possible it could have happened in the Fourth Rebellion, not the Third. After all, the Third Rebellion came very close to succeeding, and or at the very least, much closer than the Fourth Rebellion did. So it's definitely possible that, you know, a Greyjoy betrayal fits better in the Fourth Rebellion, especially because, you know, that crossing would have been a perfect opportunity to betray the Blackfires and slow them down.
0: Right, and we need something to explain why this was such a disaster. Uh, Yeah. The world of ice and fire. It ended far more quickly than the pretender might have wished at the Battle of Wenwater Bridge. Afterward, the corpses of the Black Dragons slain choked the Wenwater water and sent it overflowing its banks. The Royalists in turn lost fewer than a hundred men. take another look here. As you can see, that's as far as they got, right? See, this is why we've been saying it's kind of pathetic, right? It just doesn't seem up to Bittersteel's standards. Now, maybe we're underestimating the decisions of other commanders, but like we said, maybe Bittersteel wasn't calling the shots as much as he used to. Maybe Damon the was in command, and he just wasn't very good, but uh, these are just. This is pure guesswork. We don't know anything about Damon the Third in terms of personality.
1: We also can't credit Bloodraven's spy network because at this point in time he is at the Wall. On the other hand, you know, getting advance notice of a large army gathering in Kairos and heading for Westeros—it's definitely possible. We've already talked at length about how the Golden Company's whereabouts are impossible to conceal because they're too important to the politics of the of the Free Cities, and they're too famous. Now, you'd need spies to report on Bittersteel's exact plans, right? You know, where is he intending to land and so forth. But you don't need spies to report on the whereabouts of 10,000 fighting men and their significant extras and horses, or the massing of ships to carry them, because that word is going to breach you anyway.
0: But if that's the case, which I think it probably was, then why wasn't the crossing contested or the landing? Well, maybe this explains the awkward choice of landing spot instead of storms. Or perhaps it was contested, after all, but that detail is left out. Maybe we just don't know that. It wouldn't be a stretch, you know. We don't think there were any major sea battles. After all, the quote does seem to indicate the war didn't begin until they landed. And a sea battle isn't likely to be ignored by the majorly author, but maybe that is the case. Anyway, this lack of support. On the other hand, let's talk about that. With regards to it, perhaps Damon II relied too much on the dishonor of Aeneas's execution and the memory of his grandfather and all these other things. Perhaps they didn't have Blackfire. That remember we talked about that. That would hurt. And all these things are interesting to look at in total, because maybe they underestimated a few of these factors rather than all of them or something. Now, think about this in the back. See the Blackfire from the Blackfire point of view, all of them that were killed by Targaryens at this point were dishonorable. One killed by arrows. One, I guess, maybe killed by in captivity or died in captivity. Daemon second we kind of set aside. We don't know, really know what happened to him. Then, Hagon murdered after surrendering himself. Aenys murdered after given safe passage. They thought, I mean, if you look at that in totality, it looks pretty bad, and maybe that's why the Blackfires thought they'd get more support, given how dishonorably all of their prior claimants had been killed.
1: But, I think the problem was that it probably had just been too long, that too many of the real loyalists had died out. You know, Aegon V may have been unpopular with the lords, um, you know, but the major lords of Westeros were never the major supporters of the Blackfyres. He was always the sort of secondary lords, the the lesser lords, the knights especially. And it may have hurt that at this point, you know, Daemon Third was a grandson and not a son. He was born in Essos not Westeros, you know, so arguably he was a foreigner. So, putting all of this together, maybe we don't need any special explanations. Maybe it just came down to simple things like this and possibly not having blackfire. So, the only thing left to explain is how did Bittersteel with all of his skill, all of his experience, end up with this failure as his last action on his record?
0: Now, perhaps Aegor knew his chances were poor, but went for it anyway, knowing it would probably be his last chance. It just doesn't Something has to explain it, but we don't have to give him too much credit. We can just say, well, maybe he's not as smart as we thought he was. But in any case, a lot of possibilities here. If he guessed it was his last chance, well, he was right. And despite what was probably the worst battle he ever fought in, he still had those escaping skills somehow. He didn't have any more notable conflicts that we know of, but he got away from this one, got back to Essos, and he doesn't appear to name another Blackfire King, though. That's really interesting. He immediately crowned Damon III after Hagon was killed and he escaped. But we don't hear about him claiming anyone, naming anyone else. And that's, that raises a whole bunch of new questions. It's possible though that he did name another king, but that king never did anything and thus is kind of forgotten. <laughs> or perhaps there were just no fit Blackfires to crown. We talked about how there were a lot of them, possibly, but that doesn't mean there were definitely a lot of them. There might have been very few. Uh, Maybe he thought the current eldest was a lot like Damon II, or just bad in another way, and didn't want to crown him. Or they were just all really young. You can't crown a child. That doesn't work very well. Either way, though, despite this not-crowning-another-Blackfyre that we know of, he still clearly hadn't given up. So something was still going on. So let's talk about his final years, his death and legacy. The world of ice and fire. Sir Egor Rivers was 69 years of age when he fell, and it is said he died as he had lived, with a sword in his hand and a curse upon his lips. Yet his legacy would live on in the Golden Company and the blackfire line he had served and protected. So he died in what was apparently a meaningless conflict, another contract in the disputed lands. Nothing exciting or glorious, but that wasn't really what he was about in the first place. He was not at all like his famous brother, who was a flash in the pan that was remembered for a long time. Baderstuhl was more of a slow, slow burn, and he wanted to make sure that fire would stay burning after he himself was gone. Here's a quote directly taken from your essay that you can read that I thought was perfect for this.
1: The purpose of the Golden Company was as a great engine that would keep exiles and sons of exiles united behind the Blackfire cause for generations and see a Blackfire seated on the Iron Throne, no matter how long it took. Like his half brother Brynden, Agor Rivers would entomb his body, or at least a part of it, within a larger institution that could persist beyond the boundaries of a human lifespan, so that even in death,
0: Bittersteel would have his revenge. Well said. And he would leave us with quite a few open questions that we'll tackle here briefly. Did he have kids with Kala? Or anyone else? I mean, he could have had a bastard out on campaign. I love to think about this. Somehow he's... Related to distantly to ready to do Illyrio, that's a possibility or virus. You know, there's nothing that definitely says anything like that. It's just a theory. But I really like to think about how Illyrio, in a sense, is an amalgamation of Aegon the Fourth, who was, you know, a big overweight guy, the terrible, greedy, lustful. In combination with thinking of that, picture that character, and then picture Illyrio, and you think, okay, there's some similarity there. And then Take Illyrio's amazing plotting and planning. To me, that's like Aegon the Fourth combined with Bittersteel. That's kind of what Illyrio is to me. He's got qualities of both those characters. So I think that's really neat. I don't know. There's not a whole lot to go on there. I just want to throw that out there. Do you have any thoughts on Illyrio's connections to all this, or do you? Do you um...
1: Well, I mean, I I did come up with this idea of a double swap. That you know, if uh, Aegon the Sixth is a Blackfire, then I think what happened is that Varys did swap baby, and then Illyrio swapped in yet another baby. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's a possibility. You know, honestly, on the other hand, I think this is one area in which it's going to be difficult to find out the exact truth because, you know, this is an area in which Martin has clawed back some details from earlier drafts to, to published drafts because he, he you know, didn't want to give too many hints. So I yes. think we're going to have to wait to find out.
0: I agree. Uh, until then, we have a lot of fun theories out there, and it'll be neat to see which of those theories is, was accurate. Whenever we find out, another question I have is that's unanswerable. Is I wonder if Bloodraven ever tried to have any of the any of the descendants of Damon assassinated, or if he tried. You know, whether he succeeded or tried is both of the things are interesting possibilities. So, you know, if he was willing to execute Aenis like that, who knows what he was willing to do.
1: That was exactly what I was going to say.
0: Okay. <laughs> yeah. And if Bittersteel somehow successfully had Damon II assassinated, it would be like, you know, well, they're just going at it. <laughs> espionage wars here. And that would be really neat too. Okay. So let's talk also another interesting thing about Bittersteel is what happened after his death. What happened to the company immediately after his death? We have a list of of some of the captains that followed him, but we don't know. We know more about the later captains than the ones that were immediate. Now, one thing we do know, though, is that they were all Blackfires until the Blackfire mail line ex- was extinguished with the death of Melis, We're told that it was the company was only led by Blackfires. We don't know how many it was between them and Meleys, but you know we're talking about a period of only 20 years or so. Uh, the the War of Ninepenny Kings was around 260, or is it 259? I I forget. Anyway, and Bittersteel died in 241, so that's only 18 years in between. So there probably was only one or two, maybe three, leaders between uh, Bittersteel and Mailees. Now here's another quote that tells us a bit about where the Golden Company is at right now as we move into discussing their current state of affairs. A Dance with Dragons, the Lost Lord. We have 10,000 men in the company, as I'm sure Lord Connington remembers from his years of service with us. 500 knights, each with three horses, 500 squires with one mount apiece, and elephants. We must not forget the elephants. A pirate ship will not suffice. We would need a pirate fleet.
1: So the Golden Company has fought a variety of battles in a variety of places against a variety of enemies using a variety of tactics. And what this means is that they've seen a lot of different possible scenarios on the battlefield. They've seen a lot of what worked and what didn't, and they've been able to evolve accordingly.
0: Right on. Well, let's, this next part's called Beneath the Gold, which of course is a familiar line from Agor and the Golden Company. Now in war, discipline matters more than most all else, but the years between rebellions weren't war. That's just waiting. That's So it's kind of easy to lose focus on this long-term goal of recapturing the Iron Throne after decades passing. So this focus, the goal of returning to Westeros, had to become more than... They had to have ways to remember it, how to keep it going. A Dance with Dragons, the Griffin Reborn. Fortunately, his own ship had been one of the first to reach their destination. Then it had only been a matter of establishing a campsite, assembling his men as they came ashore and moving quickly before the local lordlings had any inkling of their peril. And there, the Golden Company had proved its mettle. The chaos that would inevitably have delayed such a march with a hastily assembled host of household knights and local levies had been nowhere in evidence. These were the heirs of bitter steel, and discipline was mother's milk to them. So there's that discipline. You can see it still in place years later. After it became well known, and that their word was as good as gold, when that became something that everyone knew about them, that is also a key component for something we've been talking about on and off this whole episode, which is how it keeps them going from a financial perspective. The company was well set up to continue to bank on their reputation for a long time, which, of course, something you pointed out in your series, allows them to charge really high rates.
1: Right. From a market perspective, they could actually be counted on to fulfill their contract, unlike basically every other free company out there. So, you know, you have to sort of guess that there is like a premium for risk, that the Golden Company doesn't actually need, and so that they can add that to their fee, because, you know, the people are willing to pay more, because they know that they're actually going to get what they paid for. So, you add that up, right, they're the largest army by far, they're the most trustworthy, which means they get to charge top dollar, because they can swing a war by themselves.
0: Now, money is useful, of course, but by emphasizing discipline, Bitterstreet was attempting to ensure that the company would stick to its original purpose. The money really helped a lot, and it kept them going, but it could also be distracting. Their purpose was to take the Iron Throne, and being on another continent, adapting to new cultures and lifestyles, making tons of money, it's not hard to see why they might lose focus, especially with so much time passing. They need, So he needed to establish tradition. Tradition is one of those things that keeps things going, and to maintain traditions, well, one of the standard ways to do that is by symbols. And Bitterstiel knew that. A dance with dragons, the Lost Lord. On his deathbed, Sir Agor Rivers had famously commanded his men to boil the flesh from his skull, dip it in gold, and carry it before them when they crossed the sea to retake Westeros. His successors had followed his example. So that skull, over time, became mini-skulls. And the memory of what they stood for on those pikes is, well, it's pretty hard to forget. That's a pretty badass reminder. Uh, Which is the point, right? No new recruit is going to come into the company and not look at those skulls and think for a minute at least. They might even be awed by them. It's pretty intimidating, I would think, and it really... Like you said, it's a, he made himself part of it all. It's like he's immortal. His body part, <laughs> it's like he's a whole, he's a part of it all. I don't really know. It's, it's not magic like what Bloodraven did to extend his life, but it's similar. It, it, it kept him going. He's still remembered because of that. So the question is, did it work? Did those who take up the mantle of leadership after him, are they living up to his ideals? Let's talk about the Golden Company then and now. As we said, the company is, in a sense, Bittersteel's house. Or, since he seems to have been married into it, and was certainly related to it by blood, it's his creation for the Blackfyre house, however we want to look at it. Houses in Westeros, of course, have words and sigils, and that parallel extends here, too. The sigil they carried in Bittersteel's day is unknown. Perhaps they carried the Black Dragon, that would make sense. But at some point, it became the skulls on pikes on gold on a, on a banner not you know they had the actual skulls on pikes but it was also their banner now maybe this was before agor's death maybe they had that idea before and agor said hey i'm gonna be like our banner <laughs> but i'm gonna guess that it was the other that his act of encasing his skull in gold was what inspired the future members of the gold company to create that banner in his honor it was his famous deathbed command that inspired it that's our guess anyway I, I, who knows for sure So who are these other guys, though? These other skulls that got on these pikes, these other golden-headed folks who are remembered by the company. Who are these skulls on pikes? A dance with dragons, the Lost Lord. The Captain General's tent was made of cloth of gold and surrounded by a ring of pikes topped with gilded skulls. One skull was larger than the rest, grotesquely malformed. Below it was a second, no larger than a child's fist. Mailees the Monstrous and his nameless brother. The other skulls had a sameness to them, though several had been cracked and splintered by the blows that had slain them, and one had filed pointed teeth." Well, unfortunately, like it says here, there's a sameness to them, in that we know very little about any of them. There aren't many names here either, not even for pointy teeth Captain Guy. We know they were all descendants of Damon, ending with Melis. Thanks to World of Ice and Fire. But after that, we don't know. Here's a little bit of a look. So you can see there we have Agor, then we have some number of Blackfires between Agor's death and Melee's. That 252 number is a total ballpark guess. No idea when Melee's took over the company. Totally just threw that out, for, out there. We know that the Damon Blackfire before him was someone that Melee's killed in personal combat to take control of the company. We'll, we'll talk about that more in a minute, but that's like, wow. Uh, then after Maileys, we don't know. Uh, we have Miles Blackheart Toyne. Again, I'm totally guessing with that 280 date, but we do know he was captain before Robert Rebellion. And from 296, it's been homeless Harry Strickland. So with these other numerations here, we've got some ideas on who these people might relate to, but it's all just a bunch of guesses as to how these connections could be, Who? what's possible and what isn't, anyway. If you're listening to us on Acast, you can see this visually because we, the Acast player, allows you to see a few images. If you're not, well, you can take a look on our website and we'll put this graphic up. Now, Maileys is certainly the one we know the most about out of these, but even he, we only know a few things. And he presents us with a challenge as far as podcasting goes because The War of Ninepenny Kings did feature his claim but it had so much to do with so many other things that had nothing to do with Blackfires, not even really to do with him. And so really, if we were to cover it here, it would take us too far afield for too long. We want to try to stay focused in an episode that already is covering so much. So, you know, there's enough material there that... We can almost do an episode on it. So Stephen and I are going to do something separate. We're going to release a kind of a bonus material on the War of Ninepenny Kings and melee. Uh, so look out for that later.
1: Mm-hmm. Since we know that Bittersteel was succeeded by a Blackfire and that it stayed that way until there were none left, it may have simply passed to the eldest Blackfire standing, similar to Westerosi titles. But as we saw with Anus, it's not actually clear who came first. After so many generations and intermarriages and interesting marriages to powerful SOC families, you could see why there would be disputes about who is the alpha blackfire.
0: Yeah, like I said, Maileys killed his cousin Damon for control of the company, but it seems unlikely that this was common, but maybe it was. I mean, I doubt it, but it may have. I don't know. It's hard to say, but uh, they, certainly they were both willing to do it, I guess. We do know that they elect their captain generals now, or at least that's how Harry Strickland got the job. So maybe they've evolved a bit. They used to have a, like a battle for who would take over, and now it's an election. But it's like for Blackheart, we don't know. But I, I'm guessing he was elected because Connington calls him fierce but fair, which is such a great leadership quality and not something that you earn by beating everybody else up in your way. You don't really get known as a fair guy by doing that. So I kind of get the sense he was elected, but again... Just guessing. Blackheart led the company for a long time. And again, apparently before Robert's Rebellion. So I guess longer than anyone other than Bittersteel. And Strickland again, only four years. So that's that's what we know about the captains. What about the actual men of the company? The rank and file and the lesser officers. So Harry Strickland again, fourth generation Golden Company. His great-grandfather fled with Bittersteel. There are likely quite a few like this gold for four generations, as they call it. And that's kind of fascinating, really. But none of the other sales companies out there have anything like this. This is yet another thing that separates the Golden Company from the rest of the pack is they don't have these generational, like multi-generational descendants within the same company. That's just really unusual. And given that dispute between maylis and damon for leadership of the company there may have been smaller scale disputes like that within the company i don't necessarily mean fighting to the death i mean it could have happened like that in some cases but there would definitely be disputes of some kind like for example we as we talked about who takes over the company when one of the blackfires dies well let's look at one of these lesser families well who gets their stuff when one of them dies and we know that they carry a lot of wealth on them so how does that work most of these sell swords Covered in loot, like if you see a second son who's covered in and he's wearing rings and he's got armbands, he's all well. That probably means he did something right. That means he's probably earned it in the company. But in the in the golden company, maybe this is just wealth passed down. How do they handle that? How do they handle recruits who are family members? Do they just let you in? Is it do they have too much nepotism or do they make you earn it? A lot of interesting open questions. Um. So let's let's chat for just a minute here, Stephen. Uh, one example I like to bring up is Brown Ben Palm telling people about how he, when he was young or he found a, a bunch of gold on a corpse and the officers and his sergeant just took it from him basically. And that taught him a valuable lesson. I get the feeling the golden company wouldn't handle it this way. What do you think?
1: No. And it may be that the, the custom of the golden rings one yeah. per year, it it's like a hedge against that. It's like the same reason that we pay you know, legislators a salary is because we don't want them going out seeking bribes. I think it's a similar thing that if they know that they're going to get rewarded on a regular basis based on seniority, that is an incentive to stick around, to not rock the boat. And, you know, stealing from your men is something that gets you stabbed in the back in the middle of the night. So I think that's Mm. probably how they avoid that.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Now, another question, we talk about how over time, The exile families would be probably less and less of a percentage of the total gold companies make up because of people dying off, because of et cetera, et cetera. Just long, lots of time passing that's going to happen. So, who else are they going to recruit in the meantime? Where else are they going to draw men for the companies? Obviously, there's just the general ranks of would be sell swords out there, but there's probably more to it than that. We talked about. It, when preparing for this episode, we tossed around the idea that they maybe have some escaped slaves, like pit mm-hmm. fighter types, like that. Well, that uh, Chains well.
1: is a good example of that, right? You know, there's oh, yeah, yeah. somebody who sort of very visibly looks like an escaped slave.
0: Yeah, and then, you know, there's maybe we know there's multi-ethnic types in there. There's the, the archers are commanded by a summer islander, and there's got to be Lyseni and Valentines. Uh, for example, the spy master is Lyson Omar, and then the paymaster is Goris You've got people from all over Essos. And these guys aren't, these guys aren't, didn't know Bittersteel. They don't have these Westerosi ties. They're just new members of the company.
1: Right. But clearly there's enough of a sort of institutional inertia that they kind of get brought in. That, you know, they they sort of go native, as it were. Um, And, you know, it does suggest a certain commitment to meritocracy that it's not just the descendants of old families, that they're bringing in the best of everything that they see around them. So they're like, okay, if that guy's good, you know, if the Summer Islanders are the best archers, let's get some Summer Islanders. You know, if the Lysini make for good spy masters, let's get a Lycini spy master. If the Voluntines are really good at logistics, let's get one of them. So it, it does speak to the quality of their officers.
0: Definitely. And one remaining question... I love to to tackle and it's been debated a lot in the fandom is those that do have the exile names Which of them are actually real because it's pointed out that men in the free companies just take whatever name they want So we think that that Laswell peak we think he's really a peak But there's some guy going by the name mud and the muds have been extinct for thousands of years That seems pretty unlikely but there's also some in the middle. There's a, there's Lawston, there's Strong's, there's Cole, there's Weber. Uh, in some cases, multiples of these. So these are all Westerosi houses that didn't go out that long ago. Well, the Strong's maybe did, but Lothston's well. Not the that the
1: tricky ago. thing is, uh, and this Weber. is, and this is something I found out in doing my essay on the Riverlands. There is a political tradition in the Riverlands of people taking on names of dead houses to establish a sense of legitimacy looking backwards. So, there have been muds, there have been justments, there have been teagues long after those houses were destroyed, who pop up and, you know, lead a rebellion or something like that. So, it may be that this is a tradition within the Golden Company that, you know, you know, Blackfire made himself king, you know, he changed the name of the dynasty, so... Maybe you choose your own name. Maybe it's a way of like staking a claim, right? You know, I'm a Loston. Hall is mine when we get back. You know, I'm <laughs> I'm a I'm a mud, You know, Oldstone is mine when we get back. Or whatever. I think that's
0: pretty smart. I think you might be right. Although if that's the case, I wonder what the heck the Cole guy was thinking. I don't think they have much. <laughs> you should have fixed it. The Loston guy was on top of things because Harrenhal—that's a—that's yeah. a real castle. But the coal guy—I don't know. That—that's not aiming very high. <laughs> There should, be a, there should be a Lannister in the Golden Company. It's truly aiming high. <laughs> <laughs> now, the continuity of these bloodlines, as well as the overall professionalism that we've painted here, makes me think that they probably had oral, maybe even written, records, of all these different kinds of armies they faced, where we talked about how they faced maybe the Dothraki, the Valentines, the this and that, all these different armies, all these different places. They maybe don't just have that experience, they may have recorded it so that the company in later generations will still have that memory. Something that the Byzantines did a bit of, and certainly other regimes did as well. But that's the Byzantines are one of the more famous ones to do it. So I think that's really useful. Like, in other words, they passed down that knowledge of how to exploit these other enemies.
1: Right. And, you know, definitely, I think we can say that, you know, uh, given what the professional free companies are hired to do outside of the disputed lands, they definitely have had experience fighting the Dothraki, because there's... A lot of merchant caravans that need to cross the Dothraki Sea, they're going to get attacked on a regular basis. And so, you know, you can see signs, for example, that, you know, a lot of the Golden Company archers have Dothraki bows. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it suggests that they have learned how to face the tactics of the Dothraki, how to adapt their military technology. Uh, and, you know, they've been in Essos for almost 90 years, almost 100 years now. There's no way that they haven't fought the Dothraki. We know that they fought the Unsullied. They fought the free, other free companies of the free cities. So they have experience fighting a wide range of opponents.
0: Yeah, and not only do they have experience with such a wide variety, they have clearly incorporated some of that wide variety into their own arsenal. Something we talked about a lot, but let's get more specific with what we're going to call East versus West. Now, you've heard that term before in the real world, But this is no mere Chinese burrito nor Pad Thai pizza we're speaking of. But the concept is similar. It's taking the best parts from different cultures to make something new and better. Now, maybe that wasn't the best example since those foods might not sound so good to a lot of you.
1: (laughs) But taste aside, in the Golden Company's sense, what they've done is sort of the military version of this. They've made themselves the Swiss Army knife of fighting forces that no matter what the situation is, they have the tool for the job. You know, they've beaten the best infantry in the world, the Unsullied. They've probably faced the Dothraki horse archers, if not once, then probably many times. They've faced the other sellsword companies and they've faced Westerosi.
0: And of course, on their side, they know about the Westerosi style of combat. They're full of knights, they have, you know, people who grew up fighting in knightly combat, and they passed that down to successive generations within the company. And they've incorporated archers, they've incorporated a variety of different weapons wielded by warriors from a variety of nations. But the biggest one, I think, is this one big step that they took. A huge gray step, and that's elephants. A dance with dragons, the lost lord. The horse lines were to the north, and beyond them, two dozen elephants grazed beside the water, pulling up reeds with their trunks. Griff glanced at the great gray beasts with approval. There is not a warhorse in all of Westeros that will stand against them. I think Connington is actually selling them a bit short here. Not only will warhorses flee in terror at the sight and smell of elephants, but the Westerosi knights and lords probably don't even know that. The Gold Company does, so they have this great weapon that will cause uh, an unintended uh, or a surprising effect on their enemy that the enemy isn't prepared for. So that could be huge. So, and let alone the Westerosi themselves being intimidated by elephants, something they've probably only heard of. It's a huge potential disaster, and you, as well as a lot of other great people in our community, like Jim McGeehan, some AKA something like a lawyer, Jeff Hartline, for example, have written about all these advantages that the Golden Company has. And a lot of you guys are particularly well versed in military matters. So this is not; these aren't just like fandom theories. These these have some some real academia behind them. Real, real, real uh, there's a lot of lots to back it up. In other words, so. Everyone seems to agree that the Westerosiyomers are heavily outmatched. That's a, one of the bottom lines. Which raises an interesting question, then. Why wasn't that the case for the Third and the Fourth Rebellions? If they have all these advantages now, why did they lose before? Well, that's a good
1: question. And this may not fully explain it. But, you know, one strong possibility is that these adaptations may not have been complete in Steel's day. He was probably leading an army that was mostly Westerosi fighting in the Westerosi fashion. The Summer Isles archers led by Black Balak. They probably didn't exist, or they were a very small component back in the day. Likewise, uh, the elephants, that wouldn't have been incorporated until after they'd had experience fighting Volantis. It's also important to note that, you know, while Bittersteel left, it left a huge impression on the company... It's highly unlikely that nothing changed after his death, that, you know, he led them very well, but they've kept making changes over the years, and elephants is probably one of those changes.
0: Yeah, probably one of the smarter ones. But not all the changes are going to be a good thing. Let's look at what might be a problem for the Golden Company. We'll call the section from steel to gold. Current leader Harry Strickland is a different animal from prior Captain Generals, as we showed earlier. And it may be that the gold Company's ability to charge higher rates and to get easy jobs, and for people to always be afraid of them, and for people to back down, is working against them. And so, in other words, it's possible that they are, or were, growing soft. Again, George gives us a stark example of this with Harry Strickland and his foot baths and his blisters. It's Connington is flat-out embarrassed by this. And further embarrassed later by Harry's just sluggishness. He seems to be very unbold. He seems to be completely averse to risk, which is really, really not at all what we hear about Bittersteel and Malise and probably a lot of these other Blackfire leaders.
1: Right. You get the sense that possibly they haven't been challenged in a while, that their reputation is so strong that no one wants to fight them. So there's going to be a lot of conflicts between the Lysmere and Tirosh that ended simply because one side hired the Golden Company and the other side would simply say, okay, we can't beat that. Uh, now, there's on the other hand, there's probably plenty of times where they did have to fight. They sacked Cohort, So there's going to be a lot of fights where they're able to win just by showing up on the battlefield.
0: Uh, yeah, I agree. And, and Connington here has the same worry about, as I said, he was. he's worried about Harry, he's thinking he's a weakling, uh, but there were a lot of things he saw that made him feel better. A Dance with Dragons, the Lost Lord. They found the Golden Company beside the river as the sun was lowering in the west. It was a camp that even Arthur Dane might have approved of. Compact, orderly, defensible. A deep ditch had been dug around it with sharpened stakes inside. The tents stood in rows with broad avenues between them. Nothing like invoking the name of Arthur Dane to make you feel strong. And more than his feelings on the matter, we see them in action. And of course, Connington's feelings are important, but seeing their success in the early parts of, or later parts of A Dance with Dragons, and in some, maybe a little bit of the the Winds of Winter spoiler chapters, not to give too much away there, but they appear to be very confident. We talked about how they got around their difficulties with professionalism and discipline and knowing what to do. And they appear very ready to take on Westeros. And Westeros doesn't really appear ready for them. But still, they elected. After all that, I still wonder, how did Harry Strickland get in, in charge? How did they elect a man like that that was so cautious? Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, one possibility
1: is, you know, even though many in the Golden Company are these descendants of the Westerosi exiles, a lot of them aren't. And even if, you know, even those that are, they've all been sellswords. For multiple generations so they know what they're doing on the battlefield but the question is do they know what they're doing politically if Cersei Lannister or Mace Tyrell offers lordships to get them to defect how loyal are they how deep does Bittersteel's discipline go
0: especially if in some cases they're offering the actual lands that some of them have been seeking for generations they, they just couldn't pass on that at least some of them I think or Daenerys A better example perhaps because they might not take inducements from Cersei or Mace because they think they're winning but if Danny comes along with her dragons and threatens them with something that they can actually be afraid of that they think huh that actually uh, we might not be able to beat that so that's something that sellswords value more than wealth even which is their own skin so if it comes down to it would the Golden Company really really keep their word if Daenerys's giant army is facing them and offering them to, to come join them, <laughs> you know. If not all of them, some of them, I don't know. Doesn't I wouldn't count on them in that case. Uh, as much as their reputation is strong, this is still like uh, I don't know if you can trust them here. So many of them are assuming that Danny is going to be either the marriage partner to Egg on the sixth or that she'll just stay there in Slavers Bay. So I think a lot of them haven't even really considered the possibility that she's going to be an enemy. Which I think us readers think that's by far the most likely thing. I don't see Egon getting being an ally of Danny in the long run. Do you? No. Nope. Very simple and concise. No, there. Yeah. There's no no uh no beating around the bush there. So when it comes down to it, with Daenerys or Cersei or someone else, will it be the steel or the gold? The Dance with dragons. The lost lord. Whatever their sires or their grandsires might have been back in Westeros before their exile, the men of the Golden Company were sellswords now, and no sellsword could be trusted. So interesting then, that master players of the Game of Thrones are doing just that. Or is that wrong? Are they not trusting them? Are they just playing them? Varus and Illyrio, you know, you never know. Connington himself doesn't seem to know all these details. He's not an insider like Varus and Illyrio are. Blackheart? His friend, Connington's friend, he seemed to know more than Connington himself. So there's a lot to, to be think about there as far as this whole plot. One of which is, who is Aegon VI really? Is he a Blackfire? Now, that is way too big a mystery for this episode, but it's certainly a part of all this. And certainly we can't delve into Illyrio and Varys fully either. That would also be way too much to bite off, but you all know that that's a big part of this. So in To simplify it, in terms of parallels, if Aegon is a Blackfire, well, he says he's from Tyrosh. He's leading the Golden Company, which is filled with the descendants of Exiles. He's got a bitter revenge-seeking father figure. Eh, A lot of it fits, so we'll see. Okay. Our outro here, we're going to say a few more things, and then say goodbye. Uh, I feel like we said a lot, of course. We always do in these long episodes. We always try to get as much as we can, but I also think we could have said so much more. There's there's a lot of room for reasonable imagination with this topic because like we said, there's just a lot of unknowns and quite a few constants though. Like the, a lot of the timeline is pretty well set. There's just a lot of space in between some of these uh, some of these milestones because Bittersteel lived to be 70. That's a lot of time to do things and of course the Golden Company they they've been an institution for a long time, and we have yet to see the full extent of what they will do. They have something, there's a lot to look forward to in the Winds of Winter and Farther and whatever other Song of Ice material, Fire material comes out in the future, there's sure to be a lot more about the Gold Company. Speaking of Constance, the only character still alive from the First Rebellion will fittingly conclude our Fire Rebellion series. Look for that episode in the coming months. That's Bloodraven, of course. Thanks again, Stephen. Thank you very much for having me. Right on. And tell everybody else where to find you again. Give Uh, them a reminder.
1: Sure. You can find me at racefortheironthrone.wordpress.com or .tumblr.com. Or you can look for me on Twitter at Stephen Atwell.
0: Right on. Cool. All right. Thanks, everybody. Yeah. Check out the Race for the Iron Throne for sure. And we'll see you all next time. Beneath the gold, the Valar Morgulis. Thanks to the mysterious B.R., Hand of the King, Lord Jim the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and blog, and Warden of the West, Lord George Stormsville the Cunning, Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the East, Cabeth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light and Warden of the North, Lady Kelly McMath of Covington, Lady of the Villa Hills and Crescent Springs, Warden of the South, King Beyond the Wall, Rowan at Cantrell, is the wielder of the Valyrian Spoon, for the night is dark and full of turnips, Sea Lord Grayson Aurelius of Bravos, his Blood of the Titan, Sentinel of the Narrow Sea, and Grand Cardinal of the of yogg Sothoth. Neither have made outwardly aggressive moves towards each other, but rumors are rife that each is waiting for the other to make a mistake. Our small council is Lord James Inkblade, the Scholar Knight, and Master of Whisperers. Grandmaster Seria of the Barrows is Cinder of the Citadel. Lord Robert Jacobs is Master of Coin. Rosie the Clever is Master of Laws. If Bloodraven had Lord James Tuttle as Master of Ships, Bittersteel would never have crossed. Lords and ladies in their castles include Lady Dialies of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell, Breaker of the Second Stone, Lord Skip of the Velt, Lord of Castle Ganges, Mary Meg, Lady of the Bloody Stepstones. Gregor the Toasty, Lord of the Breadfort. Alicia Everlasting of the Green Blood, Lady of Desert Rose. Lord Orion of Castle Stonegate is Guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass. Lord Garen de Haviland is of Devil's Hand Keep. Ashlyn Winter is the Hawk's Eye and Lady of Castle Skyfall. Lady Mikkel of Moonacre is Leader of the Werewood Protectorate Alliance. Lord Barone of Hillcrest is Lord of the Halls and Wielder of the Valyrian Steel Machete Everblazed. Lord Alistair Whittaker is Lord of the Dawnhole. Lord Bemi Snugglebunny is Garden of the Hidden Hundred Acre Werewood of the Vorpal Snuggle Bunny. When you fear things cannot get worse, Vorpal Snuggle Bunny enters the fray. Lord Osborne of Castle Werewoods, Our roots run deep. Lord Brandon Brewer of Castle Black Rune is sworn ailsmith to House Stark, Grand Master of the Zithamanthers Guild and Keeper of the Buzz. And Lady Imriel of House Jordan. Also, King's Justice Sir Troy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade Fate. Lord Commander Denira Flint of the Nightfort, avenging the memory of Brave Danny. First Ranger Fabian Flowers, the Bastard of Greenshield. First Builder Patchface of Motley and welcome Sir Brian Rivers, the Bastard of the Riverlands, to our Kingsguard. Upcoming episodes, in no particular order, include Euron, Raven, which is the rounding out of our Blackfire Rebellion series, of course, and the Joanna Lannister episode, and the next is East Versus Chapter, which was voted on by patrons, is going to be Pate, the Feast for Crows prologue. Thanks, everybody. See you next time.